It's time for Twit This Week in Tech. We have a really fun panel for you. Mike Elgin is back. Jeff Jarvis from Twig is visiting. And Owen Thomas from the San Francisco Chronicle. He's kind of a legend in tech circles. We've got a lot to talk about. Jeff Bezos is stepping down. Is his successor up to the job? We'll talk about Apple and their AR glasses. We've got some of the details. And we'll also talk a little bit about that new bill against Section 230. Mike Masnick calls it a dumpster fire. We'll let Jeff Jarvis vent next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twit, This Week in Tech, episode 809, recorded Sunday, February 7th, 2021. I'm only 10 minutes away. This Week in Tech is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Stop handing over your personal data to big tech. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online for three extra months free with a one-year package. Go to expressvpn.com slash twit. And by... Zip Recruiter. Hiring is challenging, especially with everything else you have to consider today. But there's one place where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. That place is Zip Recruiter. Try Zip Recruiter free at ziprecruiter.com slash twit. Zip Recruiter, the smartest way to hire. And by Barracuda. Hackers are always looking for the weakest link in your security configuration, especially in your email security. Barracuda's new Threat Analyzer tool helps you gain visibility into your particular vulnerabilities. Visit barracuda.com slash twit. And by Babbel. Babbel has made learning new languages fun and easy. With bite-sized lessons you'll actually use in the real world. Purchase a three-month Babbel subscription and get an additional three months free. Go to babbel.com and use the promo code TWIT. It's time for Twit, This Week in Tech, the show where we uh, run through all the ads as quickly as we can so we can watch the Super Bowl. No, no, it's not that, it's not that show. <laughs> we, uh, we have carefully arranged a panel of people who couldn't care less about the Super Bowl. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Starting with Mike Elgin, who is still homebound in San Jose. No digital nomad he. But where, where, are you going to go uh, do the gastronomad thing sometime soon? Yeah, we're hoping for summer. We're hoping for Europe in the summer. Oh, and nice. then after that, we're hoping that because both the U.S. and France have both said that they're going to be fully vaccinated, which means all the people who are willing to be vaccinated by <laughs> mid to late summer. So we're so counting on that. Come Pro on. Provence is on the calendar. Uh, Gastronomad.net. Click the experiences. You can they're doing Provence. They're going to do Morocco. Oaxaca, Barcelona. It all involves food, wine, and good friends. It's going to be a I, lot of fun. The, the Oaxaca one is filling up, so we, I think we really? have one more spot left for that. Yeah, that's during Day of the Dead, and we oh yeah, that'll be we so have cool. all the top chef and the thing. That's a really good one if you are quick. You can get in on that one. Get in on it quick. Uh, Gastronomad.net. Also with us, normally we see him on a Wednesday. He is the Leonard Town Professor for Journalistic Innovation at the Craig Newmark Graduate Newmark. School of Journalism at the City University of New York. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Jeff Jarvis. 
Hey, Another Jeff. guy who doesn't care about football. Good to see you. Yeah, we had I, a- you know, so I was I was honored. I thought, oh, good. I get to sit at the grown-ups table. I was so happy. And my wife said, oh, yeah, Super Bowl. They couldn't find anybody else. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife is mean. No, Jason asked me uh, a while ago. She said, what about getting some of the other hosts on the Twit? And I said, well, I don't want to overwork them. But if somebody's willing to once in a while, I think it's... It's good. I mean, you do a lot of, yeah, you know, fun. you do twig every week, so I don't want to burn you out or anything, but it's great to have you. We always or burn you know, out your public on me. Yes. No, 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 nobody's nobody's uh, saying oh too much, Jeff Jarvis. But we did, and the other reason I wanted Mike and Jeff on is because we have a newbie, and I always like to if we've got somebody on his first time on Twit, I want to make sure we've surrounded him in the calm, cool waters of Twit regulars. Ha! <laughs> I thought it was for the hazing. <laughs> oh, and the hazing. Oh, and Thomas is here, business editor at the San Francisco Chronicle, but a long-time tech reporter from all over. In fact, I just found out you were a regular on our Silicon Spin Roundtable show, which is basically twit for TV on Tech TV way back in the day, 21 years ago. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, it's great to I, have I, you. I'm having flashbacks. Yeah, wow. Owen says, young, Owen. Yeah, Can't he doesn't true. look like he's that old. He must have been like twelve when he was on. I don't, I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> I, I'll tell you how it happened. Kathy Brooks, who was oh, a yes. booker, yes, knew me. She of the leather she, pants, yes, yes, and she knew that the, uh, I was working at Red Herring, whose office was three blocks away. Ah, so if someone canceled or something came up, she could call me. I'd be there in ten minutes. <laughs> That's how it happened. <laughs> So really, on your resume, doesn't like football and within 10 minutes can be here is a very good thing to have on the resume. <laughs> Who was it? Tony Perkins that started Red Herring? He did, yeah. I yeah, loved back, I loved, back in the day. loved that. It was, yeah, it was back in the day. It was uh, startups before the bubble burst kind of. I mean, if you remember Tony? Jason Ponton with a ponytail, then uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then you were around in the 90s. Yeah, what did yeah, happen to Tony? Is he still stuff. around? Yeah, he's, uh, you know, I, I, I see him pop up on LinkedIn. Um, he's still uh, working some conference and, uh, you oh, know, good. Good. meet up ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So it, there is a big football game later in the day, I believe. <laughs> and it's funny because I always, at least for the for a while, we would always say, oh, and guess what tech company is going to be buying a $5 million ad on the Super Bowl? Now it's more like, guess which tech company is not buying a five million dollar ad, but remember the what was the the dot com that was the first dot com to buy a Super Bowl ad? Was it Pets dot com? I think it was Pets dot com. It was my old friend uh, Bill Gross. Whatever happened to Pets? <laughs> I don't know. That's mean. I won't say it. <laughs> well, as Bill Bill has done a whole study of the key factor in success, and and he found that it is timing. Yeah, and he was too early. Yeah. There are, uh, in fact, you know, Pets.com um, uh, type startups now. Pets.com's biggest problem was it was very expensive to send uh, kitty litter through litter, the mail. Yes. <laughs> but that's how we get our kitty litter now from uh, Chewy. You know what? Chewy. Exactly. I mean, it's the it's exact same idea. There's no difference yeah. no. between Chewy and Pets.com. Yeah. It's, it but, was all uh, timing. So you want to see the, the very first... Dot com Super Bowl ad. This was 20 years ago. They paid $1.2 million for the ad. Okay, Dino. I gotta go to a lot of stores to get what you like. I'll be back. If you leave me now, <laughs> Featuring the infamous Pets.com sock puppet. 
<laughs> you know, it's not a it's not a bad ad, but it was in during the tech bubble burst. Soon after this ad, they launched their IPO by November of that year out of business. So that 1.2 million might have given them another week or two runway. That's all. Yeah. Leo, I, I can tell you a story about uh, about Pets.com. I actually wrote this up. I looked at their web traffic and I mapped it to their advertising spend, and they were completely divergent. In other words, like the more they spent on uh, on advertising, the less web traffic they got. Of course. Well, was the, there was the opposite story for the for the bubble because that you you bought audience. So this is the opposite. Uh, you, I mean, we've had a the, number the of sponsors. I'll mention names. Squarespace uh, bought a lot of. They were the podcast company for a while. They bought everybody. We yeah. we were one of the first that they bought. Spent a lot of money on us, and then at some point they just got they bought a Super Bowl ad, and they hired uh, the dude to do their ads. And I, obviously they spent so much. They could have bought a two-year campaign for what they spent on one Super Bowl ad. Um, I just feel like it's a status thing. Is, is that right, Owen? You think it's more of a, a status I think, symbol? I think TV advertising for an internet company in 2021 is brilliant because you break through the noise. You know, your Instagram and Facebook feeds are just clotted with ads and people sure. talk about it. There's a buzz factor. I think advertising in 20 in, you know, in uh, 2000 was stupid because there just weren't enough people online. Like you have all these people watching the ad who maybe have an AOL dial-up account. They're not going to buy kitty litter online. So, you know, I think actually there, there's an argument that it now might, it makes more sense. Yeah. Especially if, if you have a broad product that like everyone can use and, you know, like Squarespace is, is one of those products. Everyone, you know, probably wants oh. a website. I um, know, I know exactly who should, uh, Here's a here's an ad from last year's Super Bowl. <laughs> this this those of you on audio, another success story. I'll be there in a quibby. A what? A quibby. Less than ten minutes. <laughs> the guy driving the getaway vehicle for the bank heist has decided to watch Quibi. He was the only one. He was the only one. Quick fights, big stories. Bank, bank heist was an allegory for the investors. Yes. We borrowed $1.8 million, billion dollars to create this turkey. Quibi launched in April after the Super Bowl ad and closed six months later. I mean, they blamed the pandemic, right? They, you know, they, they said, oh, well, it's supposed to be mobile. Nobody's robbing banks in the pandemic. It's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> right? But, you know, I think the real problem with Quibi is, like, it wasn't social at all. Like, you couldn't even take a screenshot and share it. They, like, did something to block that. It was textbook everything wrong about a video Old product. media. Old so, media. Okay. All right, Owen and Mike and Jeff. I was try I was listening to Clubhouse the other day, and I was trying to cast it to anything besides my smartphone speakers. <laughs> and apparently you can't. In fact, the whole point of Clubhouse is it's live. You can't record it. You can't listen on speakers. You have to listen on the phone. Isn't that just about the same? I think it's so. similar, except for you can do it. You can put a microphone up to your phone. And you could always do it. that. Yeah. 
Well, you and, could do that with Quibi. You could hold up a camcorder. But but look at it, look at Instagram. <laughs> Instagram is super successful, and on Instagram you yeah. can't download photos. You yeah, can't. That's true. You can't even share to your own followers. If you put a web address in the comments or the, it, you can't click it. Exactly. It's it's antisocial. So I think I think I think the question is like, what's the context, and what's the environment. With Clubhouse and Instagram, safety, like that feeling of like, ah. this is a good place for me to share things because it's not going to be ripped out of context. You know, that I think is really and, important. And then, the you have, then you have TikTok, which facilitates sharing everywhere, which yeah. is going to be the more successful in the long run. It's well, TikTok, interesting. Quibi. <laughs> Quibi. Yes, Quibi. Exactly. Quibi, it's going to be huge. But all one's point about Quibi is exactly right. If you, if you see something you like, you want to share you it. Can't That's share different it. from a conversational site. You can't. One is a content it. site. One is yeah. a conversational site. Um, what about Clubhouse? Is, are any of you Clubhouse members? I am. I, I'm on Android. I, I've been, I've been getting into Clubhouse big time this week. Yeah. And um, and so I, I, I it's, it's invite only. It's audio only. You have. It's great. It's great if you are somebody who wants to cultivate audience. It's actually not a great site for content, in my opinion. So compared to podcasting, for example, which it has been compared to, uh, it's, it's more like a conference call that you listen to, which yeah, is like, it's exactly sounds like worse, that. but it's, but, but the, the amount of fluff on clubhouse is <laughs> astonishing. I've gone into so many rooms on clubhouse and nobody says anything that everyone it's, it's a very, it's a very kind and gentle place. Everybody's very respectful and all that, which is, they've tried to deliberately cultivate that. But in terms of bang for your buck, uh, you can spend three what, hours. Are they, are they talking to sourdough starters? I uh, haven't yet seen that. Yeah, there, it's nothing good like that. There's one right now. Yeah, I know. Here's Master Bitcoin today. There's Sunday oh Satoshi boy. service. There's a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, war. Def here's one on cyber warfare, which would probably be interesting. Kim.com is in that, which is yeah. kind of interesting. He's the founder of Mega. Uh, visual artists and creatives talking more. I've listened to a few. You know what's interesting? If you look at the global uh, calendar, there's a lot of Chinese. This is yes. not yet banned in China. And right. uh, yeah, not yet. It, it could be banned by the end of this show. Yeah. Uh, here's here's uh, here's some Russian. But I noticed uh, maybe not today. Maybe they're all watching the Super Bowl. But uh, during the week, there was a lot of Chinese stuff. I listened to a number of really interesting shows from. People in Taiwan, mainland China, and uh, Hong Kong talking about China in a way that I had not heard in mainstream media. So that's that safety thing you were talking about, Owen. They feel like they probably can do it because um, it can't be repeated or recorded. One of the founders of, of 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 Clubhouse was actually a reporter who used to whose beat what used to be Hong Kong. Oh, that explains it. So, so they uh, they absolutely know that they're going to be banned any second. I. I if they're still if they're still available in China a week from now, I'd be really surprised. There, I would love I would love to know like if uh, if they're using some service that um, you know China doesn't want to block. Like maybe they're using I, I'm just making this up. Maybe they're using Twilio on the back end and would break break too many things uh, if they were to block it. I'm trying to remember because I did hear what the Clubhouse back end was, and it was kind of a surprise. Maybe that is what's going on. Because why wouldn't they have blocked it immediately? Um, 
Oh, I don't remember. It'll come to me before the show is over. Or, or maybe they're waiting and watching and making a list of, uh, you know, of everyone in a clubhouse. <laughs> they might. They might just see yeah. it as being a useful, um, yeah, a useful place to spy. What's yeah. the advantage of? Uh, I mean, I, I guess audio conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm a writer, so I guess I'm used to typing to talk. Yeah, I guess most people aren't and are intimidated by that. So just simply being able to talk to have a conversation, but but only it's. But isn't it like, is it is it analogous to talk radio? It's just only a few people talk and the rest of you listen. It's kind of like that. So basically, how these things work is that one, two, or three people will start a room, and they're on the stage. Nobody else can talk until they until they choose somebody, and then as they're ch- talking, people can press a button that says that they're raising their hand. And then the moderators can choose or not choose people who raise their hands. And oftentimes, because it's still kind of a, it's a very chummy kind of Silicon Valley uh, vibe, at least the, the Ooh, rooms that I'm in. Oftentimes they know, personally know the people who are in the audience and they'll choose those people over people they don't know, for example. Um, but it's it's kind of like, um, it, it's it's tailor-made for the, for the pandemic because people are at home by themselves. They don't have... The, the water cooler. And so it's kind of great to be just listening and participating in this conversation uh, in the pandemic. Now, whether this succeeds when when the dust clears and we are no longer sheltering in place, who knows? But right now, it's 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 not like talk radio. It's much more informal and it's much more Got interactive. It. But it's, it's still how, how often do you hear women on it? A lot of women. Yeah, there's a lot. So this is another interesting thing about it. There are there are a lot of women on Clubhouse. There are tons and tons and tons of Black Americans, and also yep. uh, a lot of Africans Barrett, as well. Baratunde so uses it, um, yeah, regularly. Yeah, um, so it, it's kind of it's kind of turned out to be a great place for for groups of people who are not um, uh, who don't have a big presence on sites like Twitter, um, and, and so you know, including including. Chinese uh, citizens, for example, but right. but there's a lot of foreign language uh, uh, rooms, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, there's a lot of Dogecoin rooms right now. Yeah. Oh boy, <laughs> I I logged on this morning and randomly, uh, Trump's former campaign manager Brad Pascal, wow, was in a room. See, I would I, just, I would be fascinated. Now you might ask, why are you talking about this random Silicon Valley startup? Well, for one thing, it's a it's a unicorn. Uh, but for another thing, uh, this past week, Elon Musk showed up and then Mark Zuckerberg showed up both on the stage of a uh, talk show uh, that is a, apparently a regular clubhouse. When uh, uh, Zuckerberg showed up, <clears throat> or was it Musk? It was when Musk showed up. I think they had 5,000 people in the room. They spun off a second room of 5,000 and then a third room of 5,000 people. So, you know, it had been promoted ahead of time. The other thing that's interesting is it's uh, a Andreessen Horowitz venture, and a lot of Andreessen Horowitz uh, companies end up there. You know, funded companies end up there. Um, yeah. And so it's another one of – Andreessen Horowitz has also started uh, their own uh, publishing empire, <laughs> and I think this is part of part of what they're doing. As, uh, as Benedict Evans, who used to work there, said, mm-hmm. uh, it's a media company that makes its money as a VC. Yeah. We should mention it's Mark Andreessen who, of course, created Netscape, uh, yeah. and it's a venture fund. 
Are they late stage, early stage angel? I think they're a big VC, right? They're a normal big I VC. I mean, they they do almost everything, but they're primarily early stage. Early they, stage. Like, they like to spot startups and kind of, you know, anoint them. And I, I think that's right. definitely happening with Clubhouse. Like, yeah. is the fact that we're talking about Clubhouse interrelated to the fact They've been that anointed. Andres and Hor- yeah. And, and, and Zuckerberg and, uh, and Elon are all, they're all in that club. The yeah. a- right. Mark Andreessen is on the board of Facebook. Remember? Right. Right. Interesting. I think that's the one, one kind of shady thing that you should be aware of is that, uh, it is, it is actually part of a venture capital firm's cloud that they can get you on clubhouse and they can, you know, get you in their podcasts. It, it- it has to be said that it's invite only. So somebody who's a user and who has built up some points by using can invite you. Otherwise, you can't get in. And it's only iPhone. So if you have an Android yeah, phone, that's there's weird. no Android app. That's what yeah, I've had an invite and I can't get on. Yeah, they're apparently going to do an Android soon. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure. On I'm that. sure they will. Yeah. You know, it's it's actually a classic startup trick. Um, oh yeah, you know, I, I, I'm sure they. I'm sure they could have done Android. Create demand, yeah. But yeah, they're they're going to open the floodgates, and suddenly there's going. You know, they're going to say, "Oh, we doubled our user base." Well, of course, because you added an entire new mobile OS. Instagram did it right before Facebook bought them, and it definitely turbocharged their growth statistics. I mean, I don't think that was lost on Facebook, but it you know, it makes for nice headlines when you when you have that boost. Meanwhile, here's another Super Bowl ad from the year 2000. <laughs> You'll get used to this, Owen. I jump around a lot. This is a company I've never heard Squirrel. of. It's called Epidemic. They're in a, we're in a men's room. The attendant's looking at the guy. He says he's giving the guy a buck. Now you can make money for something you're already doing with Epidemic.com. Just include a link when you send your email. If your friend buys, you get paid. Epidemic.com. That's how I got rich. (laughs) The company uh, got uh, shut down six months later. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, can we put an end to viral marketing in 2021? (laughs) You mean the word viral? Yeah, I mean, I, I think only Pfizer should be doing viral. Yeah, marketing, I think right? at this point, Computer.com spent half of its venture capital on Super Bowl ads in the year 2000 for ads like this. Last year, two men bravely launched Computer.com. Computer.com sells and explains computer stuff. Take your pills! Computer.com is a great resource for scanners, printers, modems, blah, blah, blah. Computer.com taught Daddy how to download pictures. I said, guys, will people know Computer.com has to do with computers? Think about it. Computer.com. Computer stuff. Computer stuff explained. (laughs) (laughs) How much did that even cost? More than a million dollars. Or zero dollars. <laughs> After raising seven million in VC, they partnered with an ad agency to create three Super Bowl ads six weeks before the game started. Mike oh. Ford and Mike Zappy Zappelin. Oh, oh, it almost hurts. <laughs> I mean, you know, startups nowadays they they raise money and they blow it all on Amazon web servers. They blow it on Facebook and Instagram ads, you know, to to build up marketing lists. Um, but it's not, 
it's not a splashy one and done like a Super Bowl ad. There's a lot of status in having a Super Bowl ad. You know that when you go to yeah. work the next day, people say, hey, it's not the Super Bowl ad, that kind of thing. By the way, uh, I just checked, and Clubhouse is running on AWS. So yeah. I don't uh, I don't know if China can't block AWS. I'm sure they could if they wanted to. Uh, I'm sure we'll find out in the next few days. <laughs> uh, let's take a little break. It's great to see you, Mike Elgin from Elgin.com and Elgin's List. And, of course, Gastronomad.net. Always a pleasure. I see you have uh, your son's uh, little uh, talking head behind you. We'll, t- we'll yeah, talk yeah, about Yeah, oh, this side. Yeah, that's a, yes. that's a ukulele. On that side, <laughs> we'll talk about that in just a bit as well. <clears throat> Jeff Jarvis is here. It's always great to have you normally on Twig. Um, but, you know, I can never get enough Jarvis in my life. That's for sure. And uh, brand new. And Nor, gonna... Normelio. <laughs> Owen Thomas, business editor at The Chronicle, but with a long heritage, long enough to remember many of the companies we've just showed you. <laughs> what... Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I'd never heard about Epidemic.com. That is not a good name for a viral marketing company. <laughs> not, well, not these days, no. No, I don't think then it was a good name. Ooh. Oh, gosh. Our show today brought to you uh, by my favorite VPN company, ExpressVPN. Nowadays, everybody, and Jeff, don't say anything, but people are a little nervous about who's watching you when you're online. You might be saying, oh, I'm going to use incognito mode. That doesn't hide you from anybody, especially from Google. When you're using incognito mode, if you're doing a Google search, they know it's you, no one likes to be watched. Big tech knows where you're going. They know where you've been. And you know what? It's none of their business. But when you use a VPN, you're hiding your IP address. And ExpressVPN, really, the only there's no question you need a VPN. The only question is, which one? And that's why I'm here to tell you about ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is simply put the best, the most secure VPN. They do zero logging, and I can prove it. Not only have they been audited many times with PricewaterhouseCoopers, their privacy policy exactly spot on. PwC even vetted their trusted server technology, ExpressVPN, and, and, and invented this to make sure that they, there was no way they could log, and you would know it when you spin up your VPN server, ExpressVPN loads the trusted server in RAM and it's sandboxed, so it can't write to hard drive. When you leave, it's gone, it closes, it leaves RAM. There is zero trace, literally zero trace of your visit. ExpressVPN never logs traffic data, DNS queries, search queries. It is private, absolutely. It really works. And it does all this without slowing your connection. Look, you don't want a free or cheap VPN. You want a VPN that invests in their servers and their bandwidth and their technology. That's ExpressVPN. Number one rated by CNET and Wired. And and speed is important because you don't want to feel like, oh, I'm using this VPN and I'm suffering. In fact, you could put ExpressVPN not only on your phone or your computer, you could put it on your router. It supports a great number of routers. And your entire home network will be protected. And the speed is so fast you'll never even know. 160 locations, 94 countries, very fast, fast enough to watch HD video. So that's another great use for ExpressVPN. You want to be... Uh, you want to get some English TV? Just go to England. Come out of the come out into the world in London, and then fire up your Netflix, and all of a sudden you can watch Netflix UK. Same thing in Japan. Uh, it's really an amazing solution. So stop handing your personal data over to your internet service provider or to any big tech company. Protect yourself with a VPN. 
I use to keep me safe online. All you have to do is go to expressvpn.com slash twit. E-X, they spell it out, E-X-P-R-E-S-S. Another reason I like them. And VPN is spelled VPN in case you want to know. Expressvpn.com slash twit. You'll get three extra months when you buy a one-year package. It is my VPN. It is the one I trust. It's the one I recommend. Expressvpn.com slash twit. We thank him so much for supporting twit. You're supporting twit, too, when you use that special address. So do me a favor and uh, and use that. Expressvpn.com slash Twit. <clears throat> okay, we could talk about Apple, we could talk about Google, but I think we should talk about, since we mentioned AWS, Amazon. Jeff Bezos, kind of a surprise. In fact, it happened during Twig this week. Announced he's stepping down as CEO of Amazon. He said uh, in a letter that he will be spending more time with his money. No, he'll be spending more time with his philanthropies uh, and... Uh, with his uh, space firm, Blue Origin, and the Washington Post. I don't think related to that, but Marty Barron, the um, uh, editor, is he editor-in-chief, executive editor? Editor-in-chief. Well, executive editor, I think, is the title, <clears throat> but yeah, he, he's uh, a boss. Also stepping down at the end of the month. Do you think Jeff Bezos is going to take over? <laughs> <laughs> hey, he doesn't want to work. <laughs> he's the richest man in the world, or at least the second richest, depending on where Elon is this week. Um, Amazon went out on a bang. He went out on a bang with, with their best quarter ever, which I'm sure yeah. Jeff had something to do with. Um, so the question I think a lot of people are, by the way, they also went out with a $62 million fine for stiffing delivery drivers on their tips. <clears throat> Some people say that's really what's going on is Jeff sees the attacks on big tech and like others like Larry Page uh, and Sergey Brin, he's decided now's the time to take his money and get out. Um, well, I think I think you guys had it exactly right on Twig. This is it, it seems sudden, but it's actually been very gradual. He hasn't actually been running Amazon completely for a long time. And so that the distance between where he was at as CEO and where he's going to be at as the executive chairman is not that far of a distance. That's one thing I've heard some people say is, oh, he's still running it. From executive chairman, so he has some, you know, some uh, distance from from the point of view of regulators. Do you think he's still going to be puppet master, or do you think he hasn't been in a long time, Mike? He'll be puppet master on the big, big decisions. But I think his successor is knows exactly how he thinks and is is very uh, going to be very successful because it's the same kind of ruthless <laughs> strategy that they've had for everything. But really, Amazon is a whole bunch of different businesses, each of which is extremely complex. And so he really hasn't been running the day to day right. of any of these businesses, but he has been involved, of course, in the biggest decisions. And he'll probably continue to be involved in those big decisions. Obviously, his weight on the board is going to be gigantic. So, you know, I, I think this makes a ton of sense uh, for Jeff Bezos. He's he's conquered the world. And now he wants to, you know, I, I think he wants to do the ego stuff. I mean, he he's getting his butt kicked in the space race with Elon Musk. He doesn't like that. He's going to want to spend a lot more time and money on 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 blue uh, on blue, blue, blue origin. origins. Yeah, blue yeah. origin. Yeah, blue origin. And um, he's going to want to do a bunch of other things like that as well. So I, I think it makes perfect sense. And I really, I think that for very careful Amazon watchers, this is. Really not that big of a surprise. Hot take from Felix Salmon at Axios. The role of executive chairman is designed to give the holder power without accountability. 
Don't expect Bezos to step back from Amazon when it comes to anything strategically important. You obviously, this is your beat, Owen. What do you think? Well, he owns a big chunk of Amazon. Of course, he's going he's to care about. He's their biggest stockholder, right? I yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's not going to step back completely on things like you know big acquisitions. But I think in terms of like the day to day, and in terms of being the uh, the person who Congress calls to calls to the carpet, he can say, "I'm not the CEO." No, no get want- Andy. Andy will yeah, talk. Yeah, get, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think also Andy Jassy is a very competent executive and, you know, I, I do wonder if there was an opportunity maybe to be CEO somewhere else and this was part of the deal to, uh, to keep him there. No specifics, but it is a pattern. It would explain some of the timing. Yeah. Um, and you know, why to keep Jassy there? Yeah. To keep Jassy. Oh, there. interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, AWS I, is a huge success. Andy, Andy Jesse, the new CEO, was running AWS. Uh, you could say it's a reward for doing such a good job with perhaps Amazon's biggest division. Or that's an interesting theory. Maybe it was a way of keeping Jesse from going somewhere else. You know, oh, I, and what's I the relationship? Is, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask, what's the relationship between uh, Jesse and uh, Werner Fogels, the CTO? How much was Fogel's involved in the start of AWS? Oh, I got to get, St- get Brad Stone's book back out. And- oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't recall any any clashes or, or friction there, but Jassy was the one who kind of really made it a made it a business. I mean, I, I've been writing about Amazon Web Services when it was the system they used to put affiliate links on your website. Wow. I mean, they called that Amazon Web Services. Wow. <laughs> this is a thing that started like really small and grew and grew. And I remember grew. those associate links. You'd make as an author, you'd make more money on the Amazon associate link than you would on your royalties. Oh, I loved them. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that really was the the grounding of Amazon Web Services. I didn't know that. Like, let's take little pieces of Amazon and expose them to the outside world so that others can right, right. build things. Is Jassy a technologist or more? No, he's an MBA, but he has been. He's been running AWS since its inception in 2003. I mean, he's the one and only CEO of AWS. He was. He was part of a crew of of MBAs who were brought on to Amazon. Really, their first big batch of non technical. Hires and you know those are folks like Jason Kyler who's now running Warner Media. Uh, there's a lot of really talented people who kind of um, got in uh, in that early crew, and you know I think they brought a lot of discipline to Amazon. One of the criticisms of Amazon back in the Amazon.bomb days is like there wasn't a focus on the profitability of individual items. You know there just wasn't a lot of discipline. It was a lot of grow big, grow fast. Um, which is probably the right move in those, you know, land grab days of the early internet. But he's one of the people who brought rigor, I think, to Amazon. He's also some. I mean, um, and maybe this is from Brad's book, uh, uh, but it's also from a Wall Street Journal uh, article. Um, he was the along with Jeff Bezos, the guy who thought up AWS. I mean, he's not some guy they brought in to run AWS. Uh, he joined Amazon in '97 when it was still just selling books. Uh, he was Bezos's uh, technical. This is again, according to the Wall Street Journal, technical assistant in the early two thousands. He was in that famous meeting in Jeff's living room, where the idea for AWS was cooked up. So he can he can take some ownership in that. 
Yeah, I think he's got you know enough technical credibility. I mean, Bezos is not a technologist. No, he he's a hedge fund. He, he, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, in terms of having that technical credibility, that kind of product cred with Amazon's workforce, which is really important for recruiting and morale, I think he's got it. I would guess. I don't know. Maybe somebody knows better than me, but that. Uh, what you're what they're looking for at Amazon is not necessarily technical ability. You can hire engineers. It's that strategic thinking that Bezos is so famous for. I mean, the the, the very concept of Amazon is is somewhat brilliant. Apparently, when he was a hedge fund manager, he was trying to think of well, what's a business that the internet is going to completely explode? And he it, this was a I read this in an interview or maybe it was in Brad Stone's The Everything Store. He said, no, I, it was a speech he gave. Ben Thompson refers to it on uh, Stratechery, actually. It was a speech he gave uh, in 1997 or 98. Uh, he said, I, the biggest bookstore in the world, physical brick-and-mortar bookstore in the world, can only have a few hundred thousand volumes. There are two and a half million books in the world. This is one business only that can only be done right on the, on the Internet. And it was that insight, that strategic insight, this is uh, Bezos in a speech at Lake Forest College in 1998. was rebroadcast uh, by C-SPAN. Web usage was growing at 2,300% a year. Look, I have to this is before he was muscle-bound. Look how young he is. Oh, my God. I, I know. He's, he's put on, like, you know, 40 pounds of muscles. Yeah, and he's yeah. And lost a little bit of hair. good at understanding exponential growth. It's just not something we see in our everyday life. But things don't grow this fast outside of Petri dishes. It just doesn't happen. Um, uh, we're back on the viral market. When I saw yeah. this, I said, okay, what's a business plan that might make sense in the context of that growth? I made a list of 20 different products that you might be able to sell online. I was looking for the first best product. And I chose books for lots of different reasons, but one primary reason. And that is that there are more items in the book space than there are items in any other category by far. There are over 3 million different books worldwide in all languages. The number two product category in that regard is music. There are about 300,000 active music CDs. And that, that's changed, by the way. Apple has 8 billion songs in its collection. So um, th that's changed a little bit. Human beings aren't good at understanding exponential growth. It's just not something we see in our everyday life. But things don't grow this fast outside of Petri. He's repeating himself. That's but, viral. But, but I I also think it's very different in books as well, in part because of Amazon's um, create space, which is, you know, Amazon's policies and products have actually expanded the number of authors and the number of books by probably an order of magnitude. Yes, since speech. good point. Just just Absolutely. as just as Apple breaking the album up into singles has expanded yeah. the number of, of I just put a paper in up space. in the Amazon section of the rundown that I just saw on Twitter. Uh, that said that um, when when publishers prevent books from going up on Google Books, it hurts hard book sales immensely. If they're up on Google Books, they have 35% higher sales for less than popular uh, titles. I just bought a book and it them made and me mad. Them. I bought a book uh, that was published in the early 2000s called After the Ice. It's a, it's a uh, anthropologist, archaeologist look at the evolution of humanity from the year 20,000 to 5,000. And I didn't want to buy this 700-page paperback. I wanted to buy it on – Audible would be my first choice. My second choice would be Kindle. It's not on either of them. 
I had I forced myself to buy a paper book. I absolutely agree with this. Uh, this is clear that digitizing is good for books, right? Yes, especially when yeah, it goes absolutely. to that 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 long tail you talked about. Yeah. The other thing Bezos uh, came up with, and and it's not a completely new concept, but I think he really. Uh, you know, he really maximized it is the flywheel. And that's the idea that yes. you have a business that feeds another business. Yeah. And Amazon Web Services is part of that Amazon Prime. All of these things don't exist in a in a vacuum. This is and the uh, famous Bezos napkin diagram as as illustrated by Ben Thompson in, in his Stratechery column. The flywheel is each input you have anywhere on the flywheel causes the business to grow faster and faster and faster, right? Exactly. And, you know, in with Prime, it's that you've got this this user base and you can add things. You can add video. You can add audio. You know, you can add music. And um, it makes the subscription more valuable. It makes people more likely to get it and to not cancel it. And that, in turn, funds all these new businesses. So I think Amazon's such a mighty flywheel now that Bezos probably feels like he can step back and, <laughs> and work on other things. It's just not it's not just other businesses as well. The, the heft of Amazon and the number of products that they move through uh, have to be delivered has given Amazon the power to force all delivery systems to deliver overnight. And so I think that's the biggest reason why people uh, buy things on Amazon. They know that Amazon has their credit card and their address already on file. It's like a one-click thing. And they know they're going to get it tomorrow. That That's killer. And who else can do that? I mean, I when I think about buying something that's not on Amazon, I thought, well, this could take two weeks. Yeah, Mike, there, we've done research with newspapers that have um, uh, commerce offerings and or yeah. media that have and they've found without a doubt that a, a prime logo available for you know today uh, is a huge driver of sales. And if you don't have it, it's a huge depressor. Really? Oh, how interesting! Oh, yeah, because yeah, and and so what you know the, the 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 funny thing is for media, if you want audience, you're stuck with Google. If you want advertise or, or Facebook, if you want uh, uh, advertising, you're stuck with Google. If you want to do commerce, you're stuck with Amazon. Uh, that's why they get resentful because they they never built this stuff on their own and they're and they're and they're stuck with the big guys. It might be an interesting opportunity for Amazon right now as Google steps back from Stadia a little bit. They closed down their independent <laughs> game design studio, which has two effects. One means there won't be any original games for Stadia from Google, which is probably minor, even though they did hire Jade Raymond from EA, the creator of. Uh, um, Assassin's Creed. I mean, they hired a really talented group of people and they're all back on the street. But uh, it also, the second impact is it shakes people because they've seen Google cancel things before. And it probably, given there's a lot of competition for Stadia, uh, gives people second thoughts about subscribing to Stadia, especially when Amazon is one of the companies competing against Stadia. And they asked uh, Andy Jassy, how important uh, gaming is to uh, Amazon. And he doubled down. He said, uh, really? Yeah. He said, um, we are committed to making uh, video games. This is after a Bloomberg profile of Amazon's uh, game platform. Uh, responding to a Bloomberg report about turmoil in the gaming division, Andy Jassy told the staff 
he sees a bright future ahead. And I, I imagine Google's f- stumble with Stadia probably in, informs some of that as well. I mean, it's ironic that that in fact the the, mis- the biggest mistake Google made with Stadia was getting into content in the first place. I mean, when has Google ever right. been a good content? Be like creator? starting course, YouTube and saying Apple, we're going to have a studio and create all of our own video. Right. Yeah. And so and so, but but I think that you know it, what, what's very clear over that we've learned over the last ten to fifteen years is Amazon is so good at entering. Uh, new markets, they almost always hit it out of the park. And when they do enter one, they really know what they're doing. Uh, unlike Google, which, you know, throws something against the wall, sees if it sticks, it usually doesn't stick. And then they, they close it. Um, Amazon, you know, if they get into game development, it's, they're going to be in it for the long term. They're not going to so strategic. But, but Mike, it, it, games is the exception to that rule. I have been writing about Amazon's game studio. I mean, back in 2012, I was writing stories about what a mess it was, how they were trying to recruit people from Zynga of all. Of oh, all no, places, no. And couldn't get them. <laughs> and couldn't, I think, and couldn't get them, which tells you something. I, I mean, this Bloomberg article is reflects a state of affairs that's been going on for almost a decade. And Andy Jassy, you know, clearly feels some loyalty to this guy that he put in charge, Mike Frazzini. Of Amazon Game Studio, but they have not had a strategy. They have not had a hit. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think Jassy's ascension would be a great time for them to say, you know, to reshuffle the ranks and move this Mike Frazzini guy out. Yeah. I think it is time. Yeah. yeah. It, the headline from uh, Jason Schreier and Priya Anand at Bloomberg, Amazon can make just about anything except a good video game. Um, video games hard. It's a very weird business. It's not anything like movie movie studios or uh, anything else. Amazon might have tried their hand at. Although let's yeah. not forget, Amazon does have a very famous failure in another tricky category: the Fire Phone. Yeah, <laughs> but this is what this is what Bezos uh, said, and actually says it. It's it's on every shareholder letter. Ben Thompson called it out. We will make bold rather than timid investment decisions. Well, where we see a sufficient probability of gaining market leadership advances or advantages, some of these investments will pay off, others will not, and we will have learned another valuable right. lesson in either case. You know, the so Firephone gave. Uh, yeah, you go, go you ahead. go, you go. The Firephone gave Amazon Alexa. That technology right. came out. Yeah, of the Fire there Hunt you project. go. <laughs> so, which which completely transcends. There you go. Although other one devices. might say at this point, I, what is the future for Amazon's Echo? Uh, Long term, is it, it? I mean, voice assistants have not exactly become taken off, have they? Or have they? Well, I think I think Amazon's going to probably want to get into the augmented reality business yeah. when that business becomes. Oh, we're going to get to that mainstream. Yeah, because there's some interesting rumors from the information and Bloomberg about Apple in yeah. all of that. Let me take a little break. Boy, you guys are smart. I'm I'm having fun with this one. Thank you so much for joining us, Owen. I hope you will make this a regular stop now because it's great to have you. Not just when there's a Super Bowl on, okay? <laughs> Owen, <laughs> you have a deal. <laughs> Do you not like football? Is that it? <laughs> uh, I, I I've never been into sports ball. I just perfect. You know, <laughs> I, I, 
I guess I, uh, I I took that part of my brain out and made more room for chat. It's oh, the and- un-American show. <laughs> oh, and Tom, you know, in past years, we've actually had Europeans on, on, on Super Bowl Sunday <laughs> for that very reason. But even now, you can't even get Europeans That's anymore. Funny. So we had to get Owen Thomas, business editor at the San Francisco Chronicle, but a longtime chronicler of what's going on in tech. It's great to have you here. Jeff Jarvis, I don't need to introduce him, from buzzmachine.com, our regular host on This Week in Google. And Mike Elgin, longtime friend of Twit, former news director, now traveling the world from his home in San Jose. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's good. You're going to get out there. Maybe we'll meet in yes. Barbados. I'll convince Amira. We got to go to Barbados. Let's do it. Let's do. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, that would be the beach. Uh, let me talk about uh, ZipRecruiter, our sponsor. A fantastic place to go to hire your employees. If you are in a position now to be hiring, first of all, God bless you. We need more companies like you uh, in America right now. Uh, but I think the time is rapidly coming where we're going to start to get back to work, get back to business. And I want you to think about when it's time to hire, I want you to think about Zip Recruiter. You know, companies are starting to figure out how we can survive in this epidemic from working remotely to to pivoting their business models to moving to Barbados. Performance, uh, performing art companies are streaming Right, We've seen Broadway, we've seen opera streaming, symphony concerts. Clothing companies are making N95 masks and hospital gowns. Uh, our liquor uh, distillery down the street is making hand sanitizer, Griffo. I, I like their hand sanitizer because it smells like whiskey. It's good. Brands are spending more on e-commerce advertising uh, because I think online sales are going to be coming back big time. Just look at Amazon's results. So... Hiring is coming back. And if you are in charge of hiring, you're probably thinking about this with a little trepidation because it's hard work. Hiring means you're going to be pestered, pelted with phone calls, emails to your inbox, unless, unless you use ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. I want you to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash twit. You can try it free. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. That's because they use technology to match prospective employees with your job. It also makes it really easy. All of the applications come into the ZipRecruiter interface. The resumes are reformatted so you can scan them easily. You can use screening questions, true, false, multiple choice, even essay to eliminate people who don't fit. They'll help you narrow down the right candidates fast. It makes it the easiest way to hire. We know that because we have used ZipRecruiter for years to hire. I remember uh, when we lost our bookkeeper and poor Lisa, who's, who will do it if, if we don't have somebody doing it, was depressed. She said, I'm going to have to do the bookkeeping in addition to everything else. I said, ZipRecruiter just posted. It was breakfast by lunchtime, before lunchtime. She started getting, oh, this oh this candidate's really good. This one's really good. This was literally three or four really qualified candidates within an hour or two. Now, I can't promise you that, but I... 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a great candidate within the first day. Find out for yourself right now. Try ZipRecruiter free. ZipRecruiter.com slash twit. Thank you, ZipRecruiter, for helping us, helping Lisa. ZipRecruiter.com slash twit. And thank you for helping us by uh, using that special address. ZipRecruiter.com slash T-W-I-T for twit. Let ZipRecruiter take the tough job of hiring qualified candidates off your plate. ZipRecruiter. 
the smartest way to hire. Uh, oh, you brought up something and I thought, oh, this would be a great subject for our next. Oh, augmented reality. So Bloomberg and the information both publishing the most details yet we've seen about glasses coming, coming from Apple. And this was a uh, information exclusive new mixed reality headset details, swappable headbands, eye tracking. Mark Gurman also had a lot of details. At this point, I think it has to be kind of at least somewhat true. Um, they're saying $3,000. At least that's the price Apple is discussing. Uh, they're also saying... <laughs> it makes, makes Google Glass look like a good I deal. know. You can get two pairs of glass. Don't, um, don't tempt well, me. I don't want to make that mistake again. So these are... It's interesting. These are mixed reality, at least according... Again, this is all rumors. And I should also point out, they're probably, these prototypes probably do exist in the Apple Labs. We've heard enough about it. But that doesn't mean Apple will ever come to market with it. Apple prototypes a lot of things. They're always looking for the next big thing. They're looking... They need mm -hmm. to find another iPhone. But... I think this makes kind of sense. Tim Cook has said many, many times in analyst calls and speeches, augmented reality, augmented reality. He really thinks it's the next big thing. Um, th the rumor is this device has 12 cameras. Uh, it has a accompanying thimble that you put on your finger. The cameras recognize motion. You can use your fingers. They also show you the outside world. So that's why this is not a virtual reality. You're not sealed in. But uh, but you see you see the world around you as well as superimposed information, dual Leo. 8K screens. The best I've seen from anybody, including Oculus, is 4K. So this is a lot higher resolution. That's a good thing, by the way, because you're you're only a few inches away from those screens. You want to make them look good. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, no, I I, I talked to um, Alex Heath, who got the scoop for the information about 45 minutes after this went live. Um, and so the thing to 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 keep in mind is that there are variations in the right in the in the in the prototype you saw. So, for example, the most cameras uh, were fourteen. Wow. There were all, most of the prototypes had at least a dozen. So, um, the the eight K uh, screens is not one hundred percent certain that that's what it's going to be. I. There's good reasons for that. That's expensive and it drains battery really fast. And that's right, going to be an exactly. issue too. In fact, the early Ooh. prototypes we heard, I don't know if Alex talked about this, the early prototypes we heard make, made your neck strain because they were so heavy that it would push your head, push your head yeah. down. <laughs> that's not good. Yeah. What else did well, Alex tell you? Well, the other thing that, um, that, that we were sort of going back and forth about was the fact that the uh, – because they saw a very high-res render and they were allowed – by the source to do a cartoonish low res version. Oh yes, but but the the render they saw did not have a top strap. Now typically, uh, VR glasses that are heavy have a strap across across the top of your head to help support the weight, whereas this does not, which suggests maybe it's pretty light. Um, another thing that's really interesting about this is that you you talk about all those cameras. Some of them are for looking at the outside world for augmented reality and mixed reality. Some of them are pointed at your eye gaze. So the 8K display, you're not looking, you're not getting 16K coming at your face. What you're getting is high res where you're looking oh. and low res where you're not looking. Well, that makes sense. That's kind of yeah. how your eyes work. There's only a very <laughs> narrow cone of, of acuity and almost everything else is very fuzzy. 
Yeah, exactly. And so um, this is called foveated rendering in, yeah, in the trade. That's how the foveate works. Um, that's right. Yeah, and and so I, I the other thing that's very interesting, and you you hit hit upon it, whereas these are these are set up for virtual reality, and Apple has been very negative about virtual reality in the past and very, very, very positive about augmented reality. So I think there's a there's a pretty good chance that they're not going to be super into um, virtual reality, that the, these, these glasses are going to be used for augmented reality, constantly showing you what's in the real world. Again, with mixed reality, it's going to combine virtual and augmented reality and also 360 video, which these will be great for. <clears throat> but I think I think what we can look forward to is a transition from sort of the precursor to augmented reality, which currently exists in the iPad and the iPhone. There's all kinds of development going on with with AR, all kinds of apps available for AR. This is going to transition to these high-end glasses. In fact, there's some speculation this may be a kind of developer's version to get the developers going. Google Glass. By the way, I'm sitting with two people who bought Google Glass. Uh, yes. Actually, I should include myself. Uh, I bought it but never wore it, which is even stupider. <laughs> I bought it and gave it to Jason Howell. Owen, did you buy Google Glass? Because if you did, then it's uh, it's complete. I, I, I resisted, though. I wrote some really dumb things about Google Glass. <laughs> like <laughs> like positive awesome. articles? Like this is going to be yeah, great? Yeah, actually, actually uh, uh, you, you, you guys will howl, but I wrote that Path was going to be the killer app for Google Glass. What was Path, the, the oh, mobile I social loved network Path. for Dave Moore. Oh, man. Yeah, I loved I, Path. And, and, and I made a decent argument for it, but I was completely wrong At least on you both say accounts. it was Google+. Plus. By the way, Path is still around. I think they got bought by a Chinese or Japanese oh, no, they're, company. They're, they're, they're thoroughly dead. They're dead yeah, dead? They're yeah, gone. yeah, they're dead dead. So, so, uh, but, you know, I, I, I feel like uh, people keep asking Dave Morin to, to bring it back. It was uh, great. It, 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 that's another timing one. If Path were around today, I think it'd be a killer. Yeah. Is, yeah. So is Dave considering it? Uh, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like there's anything really happening, but uh, there might be an opening. I mean, people are you know it, to the extent that that it launched into this kind of feeling of Facebook fatigue, like all of that is. Yeah, Moron was at Facebook, and Path yeah. originally was only fifty friends, and then it expanded to what 150. But it was like a very limited Facebook and more private Facebook, right? And one of the things it had going for it is that Facebook's mobile app was pretty bad at the time, right? right. And Path was all mobile. God, I loved but, Path. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think someone will, will have that window again. No. I, I, I think it bears to, to – since we brought up Google Glass, you have to point out the major difference besides uh, the quality and all that stuff. Um, Google Glass was a heads-up display. So right. The, the, so you move your head. The little screen that's floating in front of you moves as well with your head. There's, it's not anchored in any reality. Other than possibly proximity, so it could bring up content if you're like in a room or whatever. Whereas the the Apple glasses, we didn't mention. Uh, I don't think uh, it has lidar, so it can map 3D spaces in front just, of you, just like the iPhone and 12, exactly. just like well, the new iPad Pro. Yes. Yeah, but 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 the way I would express that is that those devices have it because their glasses are going to have it. So yes. this is part of the sort of getting the world ready for this all this is stuff. Also how Apple works, which is they slowly exactly. introduce features into other products to perfect them and then they can go to the next level. In fact, it's widely considered that the uh, the Apple Silicon, which they originally put in the iPhone, then the iPad, then in the Macintoshes, is also critical 
to can, this. Can, can it's I a tell you what I think? Component. Can I tell you what I think is going to be the killer app for the, these uh, this this platform? Um, it, it, uh, Apple has something called Bionic Virtual Meeting Room technology, Ooh. which they patented. Ooh. And so picture picture you're going to have a meeting and you don't want to do another Zoom call. So you put on these goggles and the other people in the meeting are represented by Memoji avatar, avatars that are 3D holographic and in the room that you're in. So they're sitting around in your space <laughs> okay, physically. I don't want to be represented by my Memoji. I no. just really don't like it. By the way, sure Owen, I want to pitch you, Owen, on a news story that the killer app for Apple's <laughs> AR glasses will be Snapchat. Would you, can you, you think you'd want to write that story? You just put on some Snap spectacles. I did. Because I don't have the glass... And, and and you what what I love is that you had this within arms. Reach. Oh yeah, you never know yeah. when you're going to need these. In fact, <laughs> Jason, mean, I, if you could bring your Google Glass back, because next time I want to put those on. My Google Glass is up there, right right next to me. I'm not. I won't get up again. <laughs> it's right I, I I hate to be the spoiler here, but I think this is going to be another big flop for Apple. Mm -hmm. I oh, I do not. You're, I do not think. Uh, you know, augmented virtual mixed reality. Oh. I don't think the market size is nearly as big as oh, wonderful you know, as you know Facebook I, or I, any of these folks I, think. I agree with you. I thought VR was a complete bust. It, yes, VR, but augmented reality. I think so. Let me take the potentially, most but look at Hololens, which is not good. Uh, look at Magic Leap, which I you know I tried the develop thing, not good. There's a long way to go on this stuff. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A long way. I mean, uh, 10 years uh, before. But but I think within 10, 12 years, I think well, augmented they, reality is going to replace. You're both right. Smartphones. You're both right, because Apple's going to ship these in a year or two. Owen will be right then. And then maybe in the long run, there'll be. A well, the other part if, of this news. What if there's is, a long is, way is to the, go and, and and it goes nowhere? Right. Well, the, the, the other part of this news is that our Apple is targeting 2025. By the way, these glasses are targeted for next year. But the, the light version where you're actually looking through physical glass instead of looking at a, a 8K monitor in, for each eye is 2025. That's their target. I'm They're more, not going to hit I'm more that. interested no in that. You don't think so? Yeah. Oh, no, no. That, that's that's going to be the killer. That's the killer platform. Yeah. The technology isn't there yet. But Yeah, if those glasses you're wearing right now, Mike – could yeah. have augmented reality, some sort of heads-up display on them. Well, it, it'll it'll be much more than that. It'll be uh, it'll be like the augmented reality where where 3D objects are anchored in space, right? Like Hololens or whatever, right? And it'll be very very high tech. But we're talking three, four, five years where even the first versions of these hit. But when they do hit, this is the thing that's going to replace smart smartphones as the main computing device that people use. I Clearly, think. what Apple thinks. Yes. The good the good news for Apple is that they're making another big bet on hardware that I think is going to be much smarter in the long run, and that's AirPods. Yeah. And I think AirPods are actually going to be the thing that augments reality far more than any of this video, you know, this video vision dependent mm -hmm. hardware. Because I, I imagine, completely... yeah, I mean, sorry, right now you can uh, right now you can have Siri read your text messages to you while you're listening to something and do something else. And I think if you think about building on that experience where it's not interruptive, um, then, you know, I, I just think there's a lot more there's a lot more room for the, for growth there in audio. But but in the augmented reality space, you're going to get 100 percent of what you get 
through earbuds because you're going to have the audio. You're going to have haptics. So there's actually going to be an element of haptic. There, there's haptics in this prototype, by the way. Uh, and you're going to get the visuals as well. So in terms of turn-by-turn directions, yes, you can have it talk to you, but you you are going to want to see those arrows floating in space telling you where to go. For children's applications, they're going to want their Disney characters dancing all over the house for, you know, whenever you're moving around in the world, you just want information popping up or, and, and all this kind of stuff. I think that the I, I think you're right that augmented reality is going to be super, super powerful, especially as the AI, AI gets better. But 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 I do think that the way to look at Apple's uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, mixed reality uh, project is that it will combine uh, the best of the iPhone, the Apple Watch, and the AirPods, and all the things that you can do with those devices into a single interface with the addition of holographic video. So it's really all those things coming together, I think. It, I, I, mean, I think you're right, Owen, that the, the audio is going to be a big part of this, and spatial audio, clearly that's what they're going for. But couldn't it also be a technology like LiDAR that they're developing for down the road a, pro, a killer product that would include all of the above? I mean, I think I think that they're going to have to create a lot of contextual technologies so that they know where you are and what you're doing at a given time, and then they prompt you to display something. And they're going to take that, strip away the video part that is useless, requires a lot of hardware, yep. put that into the audio product and make that super smart, super helpful you know, the, the right information at the right time in your ear and, um, you know, and abandon the video hardware. Well, there's one other thing that might confirm this, which is that Apple clearly cares about health. The Apple Watch turns out to be a health device as much as anything else. And uh, an in-ear piece of hardware has all sorts of access to health information that even a watch doesn't have access to. So it would yeah, it, fit in with it, that as well. I mean, can you imagine wearing one of these things and like bouncing around on a treadmill? No, but you are going to have some kind Absolutely. of audio. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so so I I think the glasses the the glasses we're getting to in 5 years will be almost as light as anybody's plastic prescription glasses. Right. Um they'll they'll be great on a treadmill and but but I think the the larger point is that we're really talking about timing because all user interfaces in the entire history of user interfaces have always gone toward having the computers and the technology work harder so that the human to, to, to match up with human nature and human expectations. Human beings are visual. The idea of having 100% of the sort of augmented content coming in to be interpreted through language uh, is awesome. I would love it. But I think that it's even more awesome for the hu for human nature to have a visual representation of things uh, as they're running around. And I, I really think that, you know, they're going to be sports versions, sunglass versions, lots and lots of versions. And I also think that it's going to be so powerful that people with perfect vision will start wearing glasses just so they can get it. Right? <laughs> uh, there'll be a style thing. And somebody yeah. in the chat said, another, how long before uh, Apple buys Luxottica, which, of course, monopolizes the entire glasses right. frame business all worldwide. And it would make a perfect sense for Apple to buy Luxottica. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, can I ask about a different Apple story that confuses the hell out of me? Yeah. Kia? Apple? <laughs> yeah. Kia? I can explain Kia. <laughs> so this is – so, look, if you're Apple computer, you have a massive hit in the iPhone – that's been driving revenue for 
more than a decade. It's, you know, it's just outpaces everything you've ever done before. There has to be intense pressure from stakeholders and customers, frankly, to do the next big thing, right, Owen? I think that that's a lot of what these rumors we're seeing are, is about, is that Apple is striving mightily, spending a lot of its big multi-billion, hundred-billion-dollar cash hoard on trying to find the next big thing. You know, I think I can, I can answer the Kia question with one word, Foxconn. <laughs> Apple is not a manufacturer. They don't want to make it. And, and it, you yeah. know what? I wouldn't buy a car Apple manufactured. It would True, be, but, I mean, but as a brand? I mean, Renault, no, no, it's not the brand. So Fiat. here's the reason, Kia. And I think this is what Owen's about to say. And by the way, this is a rumor that comes out of a Korean site. This is, you know, as sketch a rumor as you can get, although it kind of follows on a Hyundai, which is Kia's parent company, announcing foolishly that they were talking to Apple shortly. I'm sure anybody who saw this, I certainly didn't thought that was strategically stupid. And they immediately retracted it within hours. Oh, no, I'm sure Apple's talking to a lot of people. I'm sure they got a call from Cupertino saying, hey, if you want to do business with us, here's lesson number one. Shut the hell up. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, uh, Kia, Hyundai have a, a kind of mature electric platform that's fairly well known. Uh, they've been doing electric cars for a while. You need a manufacturing partner, like you said, Owen. True, true. Owen, uh, right about that. Yeah, and, and you know, if according to the rumor, Apple wants to make a hundred thousand vehicles per year when they release this in three years, you're going to need somebody like Kia who knows how to. Do that it took Tesla quite a while to ramp up to that size. Go ahead, Owen. I'm sorry. Oh, also for Toyota, General Motors, like they've They're got busy. too much ego, right? <laughs> They're busy. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, right even, even even if they had spare manufacturing capacity, they would not want to cede, you know, the 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 ground to Apple. Think about when Apple got into the iPhone. They they oh, partnered Verizon with Sing said no way. Yeah, they partnered with Singular. Not right. even it wasn't even AT and T then. Right. It's like the also ran of right. uh, of wireless. Companies. This is why it's so good that to was, have your historical perspective yes, here. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's, you know, Singular was willing to to do what Apple wanted, and you know, I think whoever ends up making an Apple car, if there really w is going to be an Apple car, is going to be someone who is willing to you know cede ground to Apple. Kia also has a, a factory in Georgia, the United States, not Tbilisi. So uh, that's a big selling point these days for uh, Apple. So they could make these cars in the U.S. It would probably be, I'm sure it'd be electric. The question is, would they also be self-driving or how self-driving they would be? I mean, they'll be as self-driving as every other car, which, you know, the whole industry is going towards self-driving gradually. Right. So they'll, they'll be right along there with there. But I think that Apple... If people are still confused about why Apple will get in the car industry, I think Apple understands that in the future, a car will be primarily a content consumption experience. Yes. The transportation part of it is kind of commod a commodity. So who yeah. cares? Yeah. Your body is going to be shuffled around. It's no big deal. Cars resemble each other so much these days in terms of their internals and their functionality. All that stuff is commodity. What isn't commodity is the experience, the user experience, the, the customer experience, the content consumption experience, why your body is being moved around. And so I think that people have a hard time getting their head around uh, that reality. Uh, but once you accept that, that once you're in a self-driving car or mostly self-driving car, 
you your mind is on other things besides watching the road, right? So you're going to be doing VR experiences. You're going to be listening to music, watching concerts, ch chatting with people in HD video and all that kind of stuff. Apple is not going to seed, you know, 30% of people's content consumption life by not being in the cars. They're going to make sure they're going to make Neither sure they're will, in the cars. Google or Amazon or any of them. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's the the key insight that uh, make that 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 tells us why they're getting in the car business and also why it's conceivable that they would partner with a company like Kia, which is a subsidiary, I think, of Hyundai. It doesn't matter. As long as you have batteries that work and you have a, a the, the factory capacity and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter who the who the who the car maker is. That's not the important part of a car in the future. Apple being Apple, it'll probably be stick shift just to be difficult. <laughs> no, there'll be no buttons. It'll right exactly. <laughs> this is, Mike, this is, this is incredibly depressing and dystopian because basically what you're saying is we're going to be getting in cars that drive themselves, and we're going to be tuning into these, you know, AR, VR experiences, basically the car is going to become like a little mini VR studio. And that's the yes. only way we're going to interact with people is, you know, basically we're, we're pretending that we're taking rides with each other. Well, I think these, we're going to be in these immersed cars. in, we're going to be immersed in augmented reality and entertainment and infotainment and, 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 and HD sort of uh, video interaction with people and, and surfing the internet, all that kind of stuff all the time. And it, it's just like the future has always been. It's going to be way better and way worse at the same time. Would it be safe to say that what Apple's core... See, uh, you know, you always try to understand what a company's core business is. It's said that the railways would have done better if they'd understand that they weren't in the railway business. They were in the transportation business. Is it safe to say Apple's core business is experiences, is delivering experiences? Leo, I'm, I'm going to correct you there. The, the smartest railways figured out that they're in the real estate business. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. when you connect two nodes with a transportation yeah. network, yeah. suddenly the real estate on either it, end it, becomes the truth more is, valuable. It always comes down to that. Radio stations yeah. are in the real estate business. Movie yes. theaters are in the real estate business. Podcasters, if they're smart, are in the real estate business. Which is the McDonald's hard. brothers learned McDonald's the is a McDonald's real estate business. Yes. So here's the What is Apple making more in? valuable? Apple is in the content business. So half of their, uh, well, not half, most of their business is in the content consumption experience business. And the minority of their business is in the content creation business. That's the way I think is a good way to understand Apple. Or experiences is another way to, to put it. It's about, they're, they're in the content business. Their hardware facilitates, brings you, the, the content, those experiences. And it makes perfect sense if they're going to develop a car, it's a content vehicle. It, it's, it's a phone with wheels. Yeah. Um, why Hyundai, Hyundai unveiled, um, in fact, this is Roberto Baldwin writing. We got to get Roberto back on the, the show. He now works at Car and Driver. Hyundai unveiled in December their EV platform. They plan to have 23 global electric vehicles by 2025. The platform, which is called EGMP, uh, and it's Hyundai and Kia, is can deliver as much as 600 horsepower, which means they can do high performance as well as, you know, get around cars. Uh, they're targeting 310 miles of range. This is a competitive, they call this in the business sled uh, that you can build a car on that 
goes right up against what GM's doing. In fact, one of the things you're going to see on the Super Bowl, if we ever get to watch it uh, today, is GM basically making the announcement that they are turning into an electric vehicle company. Um, this They announced this at CES. Uh, you'll also see Audi responding to the Will Ferrell commercial. I can't wait to see both of those. So this, it's it's pretty clear that the big three automakers. I'm 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 you know next week going to take a delivery of a of a electric Mustang. At the big, last, finally, the big three automakers are clearly seeing the future as electric. Uh, Apple is, and it makes perfect sense that Apple would go with somebody who has a platform, manufacturing ability, a factory in the U.S., even if this rumor is wrong, and it and it's kind of coming from a less than reliable source. It makes it makes so much sense that I think it's probably true. Much like so you have Google and Ford, you have GM going electric, you yes, have Apple going right. with Kia. That was this There's week. Google, lots of stuff Google and Ford yeah. announced a partnership to do Google software on Ford's new vehicles, not the Mustang, but coming in the next couple of years. That's a very good point. And I wonder really about the Germans, too, because they're not going to sit back. No. Who would they deal with? Themselves. <laughs> Let's take a break on that note. <laughs> I love it. Jeff Jarvis. It's not a Jeff, it's not a democracy, Jarvis. That's okay. No, it's Leo. It's not a democracy, Darwin. I want it to be a democracy. It's, it's just, a, this today. You picked you picked the next story, and you were right. It was exactly the right one. So you, you're you're in. You're in. It's uh, great to have you, Jeff. Buzzmachine.com, and of course uh, from Twig, uh, my friend Mike Elgin. I'm glad you haven't been traveling. We get more of you, which is great. Thanks to for joining us today, and uh, Owen Thomas, who's the new guy in town. But very, you fit right in. Business editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Really nice to see you, Owen. Are you do 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 any podcasts? You ought to. I once in a while I go on Fifth and Mission, oh, which is uh, that's your T-shirt. The, uh, the Chronicles, uh, the Chronicles signature podcast, and we were doing uh, actually a weekly startup show for a while, but uh, we we folded our tech and other uh, other pod, you know tech and other coverage into our main podcast good well i hope you will consider making this your your podcast in future it's great to have all three of you our show today brought to you by barracuda boy this is the time for barracuda barracuda is perhaps one of the best known uh, enterprise security companies in the world they do a great job uh they also do a lot in fact if you go to their website barracuda.com slash twit read the blog. They do a lot of research. And one of the things they've noticed is that the number one way to target companies these days is email. Email, email, email. Hackers are always looking for the weakest link in your security, and it's almost always your email security. What does that mean? Well, they can inject malware into your network. They can spearfish you. They can do account takeover, conversation hijacking. In fact, Barracuda has identified 13 types of of email threats. And and honestly, every one of these is a risk for you. You want to know, are you effectively protected against all 13 threat types? And that's where Barracuda's new threat analyzer tool comes in. This is something free you can do right now. You got to know if you're not fully protected in all 13 of these vectors, cyber crooks are going to figure it out and they're going to hit you. That's literally what they spend their time on. That's their full-time job. And when they find that gap in your security, they just choose the right threat type. They customize it. Boom. You are potentially losing millions of dollars. 
your reputation in the market, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a dangerous place out there. And here's where it gets hard. With hundreds of highly targeted personalized threat variants emerging every single day, with many different kinds of on-prem and cloud-based email systems, it can be really challenging to figure out where you are vulnerable. Okay, this is the pitch. Go to barracuda.com slash twit. It's a very simple, I, I, we were just showing it on the screen if you're watching the video, multiple choice quiz about your email security setup. They call it the Barracuda Threat Analyzer. In two minutes, roughly, you can generate a custom report telling you which threat types you are most vulnerable to. And of course, look, Barracuda sells protection. They're going to give you great recommendations in every area and what you can do to protect yourself against your particular vulnerabilities. This is free. It's easy to use. No pressure. Barracuda's December spear phishing report found that 12% of all spear phishing attacks are business email compromise. That's up from 7% the year before. These attacks are growing. Why? Because they work. According to the FBI's most recent internet crime report, business email compromise led to over $3.5 billion in losses last year. The government of Puerto Rico lost $2.6 million in one attack. If you watch Shark Tank, you know Barbara Corcoran. Her employees were, were paid a fake invoice, a $400,000 invoice that came in through the mail. It's a, they call it email impersonation. It looked like a vendor. They paid it. Fortunately, they found out. They recovered the money. Not so lucky. The an independent school district in Texas made fraudulent payments over a whole month of more than $2.3 million. I shouldn't laugh. That's, that's horrible. That's horrific. Does your email security protect against that and all the other attacks? Barracuda Threat Analyzer. Try it today. It's free. It takes a couple of minutes. You'll get a full report showing exactly what you need to do to secure your email. Barracuda's Threat Analyzer. Just take a couple of minutes at barracuda.com slash twit. Find out where those threats lie. In your particular situation, barracuda.com slash twit. Thank you, Barracuda, for not only protecting us, but for your support of the show and of course, thank you for supporting the show by going to that address, barracuda.com slash twit. Uh, let's see. Boy, we've, we've covered a lot of uh, territory here. Have I run out of stories? Never. <laughs> Never. We did. We covered a lot of stories, though, with little sides like yours, Jeff. Google and Ford uh, tying up for six years. Um that it's deal all interrelated. could yield $9 billion in revenue for Ford. And Ford says millions of its vehicles will run on and the new Google Android for car starting in 2023. Not for months. Leo, I believe, that's, I believe that's $9 billion annually. Annually? I believe that's what, what Morgan is, Stanley... So that's a, a back-of-the-envelope calculation, but... Good work if you can get it. More. Jeez. Jeez, Louise... So uh, I guess the question then is to ask is, will that mean that you won't be able to drive a Ford vehicle in Australia come next year? <laughs> It'll just stop. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, Google's threatening to leave Australia. Uh, in fact, Microsoft jumped on that threat. Google's manager for Australia testified, as you probably know if you watch our shows, the Australian legislature is considering charging Google for the news snippets in its search results, Google says, you do that, we're leaving. My, Microsoft 
actually had a meeting on Monday with the Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, saying, you know, Bing is really good. (laughs) I asked on Wednesday, remember this, Jeff? I said, well, who would Australians blame? Would they blame Google or would they blame their legislature if all of a sudden Google search disappeared? And a supr- I got a, a few emails from Australians who said, "You know what? We would we would blame Google." I don't buy it. I I'm so confused about. Can somebody explain? Are they talking about a great firewall of Australia blocking <laughs> Google search? How hard is it to get another country? No, there it, it's the opposite. Google would pull out of the market rather than comply right. as, with they as they did with China. As they did with China, yeah. Right, right, but it, but it, but it's like, but the reason you can't do Google searches in China is because of the Great Firewall of China, right? I mean, you, it's a global internet. Like, how do you stop no, Google? I, no, no, Google used to provide search in China, and it was censored, and they decided they no, no longer but wanted to. Mike's technical point that. is correct. For a while, instead of getting Google CN, you'd get Google HK, Google.hk. Right, and it's and trivial. in order to keep. In order for Google to say, no, you can't use Google in Australia, they would have to block Australians from using Google.com or Google.hk or Google. No, I think they would let, they'd say, fine, you want to be more traffic at Google.com? That's up to you. Oh, Oh, that makes sense. So you just shut down Google.au. And on Google.com, you can still show snippets, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's kind of moot because there's no freaking way Google's going to do this. Oh, I, I. Oh, look! I you're wearing your glasses. Aren't you I, handsome? I, I found this message from Google in my Google Glass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we can take them okay, off. Okay, Mike. Now you got to put yours on. I see this long. Oh, how's your battery, Jeff? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uncharged for about five years, Mike. You know, uh-huh. it's funny. Every once in a while. Uh, on the anniversary of the iPod, I'll plug my original iPod in. It does take requires uh, finding a FireWire cable, but I'll plug it in. We have one somewhere because I know we did it last year, and it and all the songs I listened to in the year two thousand one come up. <laughs> no podcasts. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I, I got a tiff with. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, the the bizarre thing about this is Google, as far as I can tell, makes no direct money from Google News when you're right. It's just part of the the overall value of Google search. Yes. And, you know, when you go onto Google News itself, there are no there are no ads. So, (sighs) you know, getting getting from the point of Google shows snippets of news to Google makes money. Uh, is really quite a leap, and I'm not quite sure how the Australian legislature is kind of justifying that. Well, it doesn't matter because Rupert Murdoch told them to do it. They did it, uh, literally. Well, they haven't done it yet. Um, they haven't done it yet. Well, the, the, the legislation is going through. Now, you think it'll pass? Well, part, part of the answer to your question, Owen, is, is that in the original legislation, um, the platforms were forced to negotiate with the publishers. And if they couldn't reach agreement, they'd go to my uncle Vinny, the arbitrator, um, and they'd meet over the Barbie and, and, and the arbitrator would, would just <laughs> dictate something. Right. Uh, and Google said from the beginning, uh, this is ridiculous in any, in any normal market, the publishers would be paying us because we send tremendous value to the publishers, but all you're allowing to happen here is that we have to pay the publishers. So the, the Paul said, Oh, okay. Okay. You can negotiate that too. It's okay. 
That's the debate, Australia though. Access, I'm doing that. That's the debate, and, though. And, Which and, way does the value flow? Do the publishers get more from the Google search results? Yes. Or their contention is, well, if you put the snippets on there, nobody's going to go to our website because they're going to be satisfied with a snippet. They're going to see the search results. See, what's also offensive on. about this, when we all know this from our industry, is that is that if newspapers had to pay for the sources of their content, they'd go bankrupt. You know, right. uh, I, I, I talk, you know, if, if Owen called me, no one wouldn't call me because he knows better. But if he called me to do a story and I said, oh, Owen, uh, my rate is, yeah. he'd hang up the phone. Yeah. Right. Right. And and so I did a, I did a post. We talked about this on Twig. I, I, I'm doing a book on, on the Gutenberg age. And as part of the research, I came across this fascinating thing I didn't realize is that newspapers from the beginning in the U.S. Uh, employed people they called scissors editors. And newspapers under the Postal Act of 1792 were uh, allowed to send to exchange newspapers with each other for free, for free. And the and the policy decision here was to spread news. It was a good thing. And the newspaper editors were all happy with it. They, they, they took and they gave and it was okay. The only thing that pissed them off was if they didn't get credit. But that was it. Otherwise, they, they shared back and forth. And this is the basis of the entire industry. Every newspaper um, reporter reads other newspapers and says, oh, it's a story idea. I think I'll take that. And the hot news doctrine doesn't exist. So you can do that under the under, under copyright. And they copy each other all the time. BuzzFeed had the story of the two-colored dress. How did suddenly 5,000 media outlets around the world have the same <laughs> effing story? Because they rewrote BuzzFeed. <laughs> Well, so here's a, here's another here's another little snip. Like a lot of people aren't talking about this movie, but Tom Tom Hanks' new vehicle, Love News it. of the World, News of the World, loved it. Wonderful, wonderful movie, and I won't give anything away materially. But his job, uh, he's he's a sort of a freelance newsreader. So he he buys this he goes from the, town to town post, buying post newspapers Civil and then War, he reads them. Post Civil War Texas, we should explain. Yes, eighteen sixty-seven yes. or sixty-eight. Exactly, but here's somebody who's getting who's getting a dime, ten cents per person, to read other to read journalists. He's he's basically a blogger. He brings newspapers with him, yeah, and puts on his little spectacles, <laughs> leans over and says, "Well, here's a story," <laughs> and reads yeah. the newspaper. Yes. Now I have some. I want. I I love the movie, but is that was that a real job or is that something completely fictional? Well, it, I think it's got to be a real job. I mean, like, uh, I know that uh, 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 Mark Twain made a fortune after he was a, a print journalist uh, telling stories that of things that he saw. Now, he wasn't repurposing He was content. more of a humorist kind of on stage, early stand-up well, comedy, really. I mean, part, part of Tom Hanks's character's uh, uh, expertise was – making it entertaining right so, that's true uh, yeah I, I don't know but th this is this is just another example i, I watched that movie and i said if that's what i would have done if i'd been born then because they didn't have podcasts <laughs> i had the same thought exactly <laughs> they didn't have blogs you know, in, in coffee houses people in in in, in england earlier 17th years, century yeah people would read the papers to each other uh some because some were illiterate and some it was just part of the the, the way it worked and then before that News ballads were distributed by singers coming into town, singing the news ballad sure. about the witch having That's burned like the, the town. town crier. Yeah, yeah and then yeah. you'd buy the song so you could sing it with your buddies in the bar or at Here's home. why I thought it must be fictionalized because ten cents. That's way too much money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> if a movie cost a nickel in 1920, 
<laughs> I don't think people were paying 10 cents 60 years earlier to hear Tom Hanks read the news. Penny, Max. Penny. Yeah, maybe a penny. Jeff, can, can I throw a wrench in here? How, mm. how does this shift to subscription news uh, change the equation? I mean, does that, does that rebalance things with publishers um, at all at all? But I, I don't think so because it's all about conversion. Right. Don't you don't you know, I'm sure you hear that all the time. Um, the reason The New York Times can get as many seven million digital subscribers to news and food and crosswords amazing, is because it? it has 60 million um, uh, on the Web and a frequent user, a frequent user of The New York Times. They had to change that when they started the paywall. Uh, it used to be that, they'd, you know, get you 10 pages a month to say, hey, you should pay up. And nobody hit it. Ten a month, a month. So the frequency of use is very low so that if you can get any sampling whatsoever, you're better off. And so they're going to give up sampling here. I mean, the other thing, Owen, that interests me in this story is so, so Google's threatening to pull out Google out of Australia. Facebook is threatening to say we're going to disallow both publishers and users from putting news on Facebook. What fascinates me about that is I bet Facebook is half wishing this happens. And then they kind of say – Good. Pets and parties. That's it. This controversy stuff, gone. We're the happy place again. Uh, I don't it's, they, they didn't it's want 97% news. of the news feed, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, news is less it's, than 4%, and that includes us uh, skewing the, the averages, us crazy people. Well, all I know is every time I try to read Owen's writing, I, the, the Chronicle says, You've read your three free articles already, buddy. Get out of here. I, you know what? That actually does work uh, for yeah. a, a lot of. Owen's about to invoice you for the show, this, but we'll talk about that what's, later. What's the sweet spot? It, that tens too many is three uh, the right number? It's about five. five. It's about five. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of data on this now. And if you, you know, when, when Google started to subscribe with Google, uh, which they did in partnership with newspapers, Google got smart about this. AMP and, and, and subscribe were started uh, working with product people at newspapers. Uh, the FT, I saw a presentation early on. And the FT working with Google data. So Google had data about who FT was coming does the zero FT. free ads. Free. Oh, no, 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 no. The FT, to you, they don't. What the FT does is that they meter it based on what they know about you from their own data oh. and Google's data. We're talking about the Financial Times. I can never read times. an article on the Financial Times. They're always. Right. Because you're trying so to go to an offer that says, hey, this guy's going to pay us. That's it. Uh, whereas, oh, really? So some people get yeah, free stuff. If somebody comes in, hasn't come in for four months, and they come in for an article, they'll give them the article because because your 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 content's oh, your best man. ad in that case. It's too much, too smart. They're too smart. But that yeah. was Google helped them do that. Well, I have to say, and this is um, again an important data point for Australian legislators. Um, that's exactly how I know what my paywall limits are on all of these things because I use Google News. And I get sent to these local articles. I haven't bought the Chronicle yet, Owen, but I will now. But I did buy the Santa Rosa newspaper and the Petaluma newspaper, and I got to them through Google News. So I think Google is definitely generating traffic but, and but revenue. Here's the, but here's the thing about it, Owen. So let's say that 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 the law passes and Google actually leaves. Murdoch's in better shape than ever because Murdoch has the brands. He has half the media in Australia. It doesn't it's, hurt it's him. It doesn't yeah. hurt him in the least. In fact, you try to start a new brand Good luck. in Australia, you're doomed. Good you're luck. doomed. I had a tiff 
with the head of the Australian Guardian in the last couple of days on Twitter because the Guardian to my – and I love the Guardian and I've worked with the Guardian. I've written for the Guardian. I am ashamed of the Guardian that they are in league with the devil of Murdoch on this. And the guys, well, you don't understand. Uh, you know, and, and Sir Tim Berners-Lee testified about the damage this will do to the entire internet, especially the web he invented. Okay. And this Guardian biz guy said, well, fine. He knows things about the web. He doesn't know anything about competitive policy. Jesus. He just flicked away the guy who really understands the web because he, he invented it. Well, and, and, and in nihilistic, cynical business is is tying in with Murdoch on this legislation. And Murdoch also, let's not forget, I know I, I rail about Murdoch on Twig, but hey, I, that's all I do. So I only have so many spiels. So I'll do it here, too. But he, the ruin of Western democracy in the English speaking world, um, is also wants to destroy the Internet. And that sounds yeah. kind of emotional, but it's true. He is he is shot against it at every single opportunity because he sees it as competition. He, to Owen's point, he believes in a in a firm, concrete paywall. He doesn't want any of this internet junk, and that's his business model. And 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 the Times of London has 160,000 subscribers. The New York Times has seven million. The difference is Murdoch's religion. We're seeing a lot of that. That's one of the complaints against the new California Privacy Act was that Facebook has enough money to adhere to this law. So they love the law because it would regulatory only, capture. It's regulatory capture it would only hurt the little guys, uh, not the big guys. I want to take a little bit of a break. And then I'm if you <laughs> I seem to have saved the high blood pressure stories <laughs> for last. But if you really want to get upset, let's talk about Amy Klobuchar and. Uh, <laughs> And her, <laughs> okay, enough. Ah! enough. Uh, and her uh, new attack on Section Two Thirty. It's uh, ah! it's the Democrats' turn. There also, she's also got a new antitrust uh, bill. Uh, she's proposing. Neither of one of these has yet been uh, got out of committee, but I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Meanwhile, I'm going to say, "Yo soy un hombro, hombre sincero. I am an honest man." Is that right? I'm, lear <laughs> I'm learning from Babbel. I'm learning Spanish. I did French with Babbel. I love Babbel as a great way to learn. It's the number one best-selling language learning app because it's fun. Bienvenido, Pablo. Bienvenido. Bienvenida, Ana. Oh, man. That, I, I'm going to ruin my lesson. I probably should stop right now. <laughs> Encantada. It is the easiest way to learn Encantada. with just a... Encantada. Isn't that a great one? Encantada. For you, I say Encantado. For her, I say Encantada, I'm learning. I'm learning Spanish. In I'm the so easiest... excited about this sponsor. This is this. Do is you use Babbel? I have, and I've got you. Well, I, I stopped trying to learn Spanish when the election went nutty in 2016. I need to go back, so I'm going to use Babbel now. Yeah, and you already know German, but it'd be a great way to polish. One of the things Babbel does, B-A-B-B-E-L.com, and of course, I'm doing it on the phone. I like to do a lesson... Uh, when I get up and then I do a review when I go to bed. So that way I'm kind of, you know, in just 15 minutes a day, I'm slowly uh, learning a language. But then as you get better and better, it gets harder and harder. They even have, and this is so cool, they just introduced this live conversation groups. That It's kind of like Clubhouse in the language that you're learning. So you can... Because that's the hardest thing is you, you learn the vocabulary, you learn the grammar, but then you got to do it in with people talking at real speed native speakers language lessons designed by humans 
Uh, unlike the language classes you might have taken in high school, Babbel designs their courses with real-world conversations in mind. It's very practical, things you'll use in everyday life, like Encantada or Encantado or Hello, How Are You? And, and, and of course, building up to, to tourist languages, like How Can I Book a Room? Or uh, I'd like two more beers, please. And then eventually, uh, you're really speaking in the language. And as I said, you're, you're going to be able to speak with native speakers in the real environment. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. At Babbel, lessons are always created by real language experts. They have 100 language experts on their team. Their method has been scientifically proven to be effective. I consider it so. It's a great way to learn. 14 languages right now, Spanish, French, Italian, German, um, and others. Actually, with Spanish, you can either learn Spanish, Spanish, or Latin American Spanish, which I'm learning the Latin American because I think it's going to be more useful. Um, and then they have a speech recognition technology built in. They use a very nice platform that helps you improve your pronunciation and accent, and it's really good. Babbel's amazing. Right now, in fact, Mike, you probably should use this as you travel around. When you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. Six months, you can be pretty fluent in the language. For the price of three, just go to babbel.com. Use the promo code TWIT, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, promo code TWIT. Three extra months free. Babbel is language for life. And uh, I think everybody should learn a couple of extra languages. You, you yep. absolutely have to use something like Babbel because <laughs> everywhere you go in this world, everybody not only speaks English, they want to practice their English on you. Yeah. So nobody wants to speak yeah. their own language. Yeah. So, so if you're an American, you really need Babbel because – traveling around the world is not not a, a whole lot of help. Well, and, you know, I speak French pretty well. I thank you, Babel. And I my experience has been, yeah, they'll speak English. You can speak English anywhere. But when you speak the language of the country you're in, it changes your experience. You get a much oh, yeah. more genuine experience. It's a much better way to do it. And frankly, nowadays, I mean, knowing Spanish in California is a must. It yep. really is very useful. Uh, I use it all the time. And I, all I could say is Encantado. So <laughs> <laughs> the difference the difference between Spanish and French, though, uh, Leo, is that uh, in any Spanish speaking country, a little bit is appreciated and, and, and welcome. Right. Whereas you will never speak French well enough <laughs> no. for the French. Uh, my, you know what? It's funny because I have a friend. She was learning France because she was going to France. We met up with her in uh, Paris. I, I never had the heart to tell her her French was awful. She should have used Babbel. Her pronunciation was not even close. And she, and she went into a store with Lisa, and the lady wouldn't even talk to her. She tried and tried, and the lady was, like, offended that whatever it is you're speaking, it ain't my language. So Lisa has learned a few phrases like, do you speak English? I'm sorry I don't speak French. And it worked out fine. But uh, I like speaking French, especially, you know, when I'm in France, I like to be able to speak French. It's just courtesy, too. It's courtesy. Uh, yeah. The first time I went to we went to uh, to Stockholm, I uh, which oddly we went because I was so impressed with Ikea when it came to the United States. I said, I got to see what this <laughs> you didn't say, what, what produced this. Where are the meatballs and lingonberry jam? <laughs> so we arrived the first night. We went to a restaurant. I get to the front. I say, Svo. As if there's any confusion, I put two fingers up to make yeah, sure yeah, it was two case. people for dinner. Yeah, and yeah. there were two of us there. Man speaks to me in Swedish. 
I wait and I use my my Berlitz at the time because there was no Babel. Right. Uh, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak spe- Swedish. Do you speak English? It looks at me like, why the F did you start you this? Start? Of course I speak English. <laughs> I'm Swedish. In Scandinavia, Jesus. their English is better than Americans. Oh, yeah, I mean, they speak beautifully. So yeah, better grammar. Yeah, yeah. it's nice. To, I le- I studied Chinese in college, and when I was in China, just even a few words for for me made such a difference in the reception I got and and just the the warmth. People are warm, you know, if you give them a chance. And in speaking yeah. a little of the language is wonderful. I think so. Leo, you Oh, you you sure Zhonghua? Did you study it? Yeah, also, yeah. Yeah, EGR. I have a little Beijing accent because I had Beijing teachers. So I say EGR. And they go, what are you? What are you? Thank you from Beijing? What are you? I had a Taiwanese instructor who made fun of the. Yes. Well, that's cool. Did you study? You studied in college. That's cool. Yeah. Taking us back to Clubhouse, I actually tune into this Mandarin Learning Club. Uh, oh, fun. Uh, channels. And it's it's really, you know, it, it kind of just wakes up the brain cells. Yeah, when and, I hear it, I just, I get all excited. It's a, I, to me, it's a beautiful language. I really loved it. Um, and I've lost it completely because that was 40 years ago, you know. I, I feel the same <laughs> way about Japanese. I, I studied it for three years in college. And whenever I hear it, I just get all excited. Yeah. I have a real... Um, affinity for china it was my major and i really of course when i went in the 70s you couldn't really go to china um, yeah but i've been since do you have you traveled to china much owen i i took a, a big trip with my family in um uh 2017 and yeah it was, it's it really blew my mind yeah, yeah. i have a, a deep affection for it and it kind of all the xenophobia and the anti-chinese sentiment hurts me i understand the chinese government is not a great regime I understand that, but there's a big difference between the government and the people, and the people are I mean, amazing. And their cities are incredible. And oh my god! Like the, the public transportation actually works, and you know. Well, that's why I'm I'm kind of slow. I'm hesitant to condemn the Chinese government. I know they're repressive, and I know how they've put the Uyghurs in concentration camps. But imagine taking a country of a billion people and taking it from essentially feudalism a hundred years ago to something more modern than the U.S. It's pretty impressive. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I know we're we're wandering way off of uh, way off of tech, but that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the show, Owen. That's what I'm <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I almost look at what the Chinese government is. I, I do look at what the Chinese government is doing there, and and just thinking, why are you wasting yes. time? Yes. Why are you wasting lives? Why are you wasting yes. your international you reputation? Do yeah, doing these cruel and unnecessary yeah. things. You might wonder that about our government. <laughs> uh, yeah, what is this anti-Muslim sentiment? I don't understand it. Uh, all right, section 230, uh, which we have all agreed is... I just like a, I, I just like the sound effect. I know. Every time you say that. Is that Jeff or is that, is that just a That's machine me. that you press? Uh, I wish it That's were a machine. I don't really need the button, though. I just I could push Jeff's buttons with just... Just a few words. Yeah, that's uh, all it takes. Uh, and you know, it, it hurts me because it's the uh, the bill. Uh, uh, here's Mike Masnick's tech dirt take. 
is a dumpster fire of cluelessness. It's great. A great dumpster fire. He always does them, but this is this is beyond yeah. even a Masvidic standard. Uh, Mark Warner has introduced uh, a new section two thirty reform bill. Just briefly, I think everybody who listens knows because we talk about it a lot. Section two thirty is the section two thirty of the Communications Decency Act of nineteen ninety six, which essentially what is it? The twenty three words that created the internet. Twenty six. Six. It's a set. It's it's it's. A, a beautiful in its minimalism, but it essentially says that you are, if you are Twitter or Facebook or Leo Laporte, you are a platform, not a publisher. You cannot be held liable for the speech on your chat room, on your blog comments, on Facebook or Twitter. And moderating them does not make you a publisher. You, you do not have the onus of being a publisher just because you moderate the content. The, uh, the fact that you could, in fact, quick, quite quickly, anybody sues you for – if somebody sues me for something, something somebody says in my chat room and people have threatened uh, and I go to court, all I have to say is, Your Honor, Section 230 protects me and, and it's summarily dismissed. It's a real protection against those kinds of frivolous lawsuits. And it makes it possible to have blog comments and Facebook and Twitter and a chat room and all of that. So just quickly, there, and if you want to know more, there's a wonderful page on, on uh, Section 230 on techdirt.com that uh, is, it says you've been forwarded here because you're clueless about 230. I think we should all send links to Mark Warner and Amy Klobuchar and Maisie Hirono, the senators who are sponsoring the Safe Tech Act, safeguarding against <clears throat> fraud, exploitation, <throat> threats, extremism, and Consumer Harms Act. Masnick says it's one of the worst Section 230 bills I've seen, and we've seen some bad ones. Really awful ones. Uh, there's a lot of things bad. For instance, it takes that defense that 230 provides against lawsuit from an affirmative defense to one to a defense to kind of like uh, fair use. So you would still have to go to court and you would have to defend yourself. You'd have to pay a lawyer. And then, yes, you know, um, the biggest, most consequential change, according to Masnick, is it takes the famous 26 words of the current law, removes the protections entirely if money changes hands, in other words, advertising, and then it changes it from an immunity to a merely affirmative defense. So I got that backwards. It's not an affirmative defense. Now it's right, an immunity. Right. It would become an affirmative defense. But he says that it basically wipes out all of the benefits of 230. So, so go ahead, Mike. I, let me just take a, a devil's advocacy. And I've actually been dying to talk to Jeff about this for a long time. But um, Good. Then Owen and I will sit back. He, yeah. Here's a question. So I, I brought an apple. So let's start. Let's start with a basic free speech trope. Okay, yelling fire in a crowded theater. Okay, if you do that, that's not protected speech because you're putting people in danger. If somebody whispers to you that there's a fire in a theater, and you say he said there's a fire to the whole theater then the amplifier is the person liable. Now let's take this to Facebook. I agree that just allowing somebody to publish something, a, 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 a social network like Twitter or Facebook should not be held liable. But if they amplify it, in other words, if, if a source of content that has 100 people subscribing says something, and then Facebook's algorithms 
redirects it from the 100 people and sends it to a million people, should Facebook not be liable for that amplification? So let me, a few things on this. Uh, one is uh, that there is a bill from um, Tom Malinowski, who happens to be my representative in, in New Jersey, uh, that tries to do that, that tries to say, if you amplify is when you're going to get in trouble. Because everybody's trying to slice 230 like it's a baloney. I'll take this slice off, you take that slice off, right? So Fosta Sesta took off the child porn and, and sex trafficking slice. Somebody wants to take off the amplification slice. Somebody wants to take off this slice. That's what, it's going to get sliced down to nothing, honey. Um, but but so there, there are variants of that. But the problems then become a fewfold. Uh, one, uh, define what's bad, right? It, 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 what's what's the bad speech? What's the problem? We're gonna we're gonna litigate that like crazy. So two, Mike Masnick himself said, if this law passes, he has to shut down TechDirt because the harassment cost to you exactly. to then fight over these legal issues will be such that you will allow no one outside to do anything uh, that might get you in trouble. So uh, I listened for the 87th time to Joe Scarborough. I wake up at eight o'clock, you know, before eight o'clock in the morning, I, 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 six o'clock in the morning, I turn on the TV and there's Joe Scarborough yelling about section 230. <laughs> I want to sue Facebook. I want to sue. Oh, really? Twitter. He's against and 230. I, finally, I knew well, I didn't he watch that show for he a reason. voted for it. Right. This, so, so 230 was Ron Wyden's addition to the CDA Yes. Very specifically to protect the Internet. I mean, he knew exactly protect, what he was no, doing. No, I'd go even farther. It was, it was even smarter than that, Leo. It was brilliant legislation because it was to protect the public conversation. That's if you a didn't better have way of putting it. Yes. You, you, you end up with one of two extremes. Either there's no public conversation because nobody wants to be liable or uh, there's really, really crappy public conversation. Everything is parlor because you don't want to moderate it because you get, become more liable. It's all about liability. So I made a video, by the way to Joe Scarborough on YouTube, a little five-minute video. I put it up on the rundown. And um, and he called. Uh, to his credit, he called. Yeah. And he said he said he's going to order Jeff Kossoff's book, which I recommend to you all, which is the 26 words that created the internet. Uh, I said, have on Jeff Kossoff, have on Mike Masnick, have on um, uh, Daphne Keller and, 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 and lawyers who really understand this stuff. But please have someone on to explain this to you because the, the emotional aspect here is somebody should sue them. Somebody should sue Facebook out of business. Well, yeah, that may well happen. And, and with you, when you sue Facebook and Twitter out of business, you also take with it Black Lives Matter and Me Too. And, and you take with it the voices who were never heard in mass media. So mass media is delighted with this. Murdoch would love this too, by the way, because it gets rid of all of that cacophony that I would call democracy and they call noise. That's the problem, Mike. Is that is that you you by 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 emotionally wanting to go after liability here, um, for 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 what reason? To, for 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 what end? Uh, just because you want to punish somebody? No, that's no, what this so is about. So personally, and then it yeah, takes with I, it a lot of other things. Yeah, personally, I, I think that the one of the reasons. So, so there's been the great canceling or whatever you want to call it, where. Uh, all the social networks got rid of all the QAnon people and got rid of Trump and got rid of all this stuff. Two thirty. 230 allows them to do, very importantly. That's yeah. why the right doesn't want 230, because 230 right. protected them in doing so. My, my fear is, is people, I, I think people don't appreciate certain aspects of democracy or free speech. One of the aspects of democracy people don't appreciate is that by having all everybody involved, they're, they're inside the tent instead of outside trying to destroy the system. 
And same thing with free speech. You want everybody to be free to speak as as much as possible. But I feel like the amplification, the automated amplification and the game of the, the ability to game the algorithm. Like what are we Russia doing right by, now? Yeah, exactly. We're right now, my, what are we doing? We're amplifying things right now. Right. Yes, so we're, we're doing that. Right. That's what media has always done. That's just what media and, has done for a long time. It amplifies. Well, yeah. Emilio, the editor of, of The Chronicle, decides what to put uh, in The Chronicle. Uh, Owen, the business editor, decides what to put in the business section. They amplify. It's, it's what yeah, media has always does, done. A human does that, but the, a human is very difficult to game in that in the same way. So you, you, oh, get the, you have this. There's, a, there's an industry called PR built to do that. Well, you have you have uh, Infowars and all these uh, who are who who are devoted to the project of figuring out how to game algorithms while nobody's paying attention and have all these runaway things. Then you have the Facebook recommendation engine. That, you know, the, the, Facebook itself did a study to find out what the number one reason is why people join extremist groups, and the number one reason was Facebook was explicitly recommending those groups to people. And 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 then they, they they got rid of you know said okay well don't do anything about it Mark Zuckerberg himself personally said no don't don't take action on this just let this keep happening then they got caught and they changed it and all that stuff but my point is that it, I would love to see people be able to have the bubble of free speech to be much larger to have more extreme content but not have that content amplified. And converting people into extremists. But, but the other, that. the other version of that, Mike, is Mike. So that, then you end up with a world of billboards. Then this notion that there's some kind of definition of neutrality out there, where they're not allowed to select things on on the basis of what they know about me. Then all I have is a huge river of crap. What Facebook does, in fact, do is to try to find the things that I'm more interested in. Now that gets demonized, like they made Jarvis into a radical. He didn't use the screen like this. It was only because of Facebook that he does this, right? And and that's the argument that's made. Uh, believe me, I've always done this. Um, uh, so so it gets demonized, but in fact, it's a service. It's relevance. Mass media was a one-size-fits-all product. We've lived there. I've had that. I don't think it's any damn good. And, and and the other problem here is that there's this presumption that, oh, my God, Facebook's successful. It's awful. Horrible things happen. The numbers don't back that up. The numbers, uh, you know, the research doesn't back that up. We're not in um, uh, filter bubbles. We're not as bad as it seems. Now, what we do want from the platforms is data to researchers to understand what the impact is. We need that, and I will I'll argue strenuously for that, but we don't know right now. And so there's a lot of emotional presumption that something must be done. We must, 230 is the cause of all of our ills. Before 230, we were a great country. We weren't racist at all. Bullshit. Well, is, is the free market, um, you know, taking care of this? Because uh, sleeping giants and other activists have, called mm -hmm. uh, Facebook and Google to account for the, um, you know, the, the extremism on their services. And part of the reaction was that large advertisers, at least for a time, boycotted uh, Facebook and YouTube in, in particular. I don't think that really took a chunk out of their earnings, though. So I'm not sure if that's really going to be, you know, the thing that reins them in. It didn't. I mean, look, look, well, but, but here's a better example of it right now hmm. is that um, – <laughs> Lou Dobbs was on Fox Networks for a long time. What forced him off? Somebody suing. Now, we look. At, I look at that, and I, and I hate Murdoch, and I hate Fox, so I say, oh, goody. But there is a concern there. A look at the Peter Thiel site, you know, suit against Gawker. Um, mm. 
right? And and so we can see. I'm not familiar with the incident. Have you ever heard of that, Gonker? What is? Oh, Owen was the editor in chief of Valley Wag. Was it? Give me that perspective. Was it in that time frame? Was the Teal uh, lawsuit related uh, to your work? it was years after okay. uh, I left, but okay. it was um, it was directly related to uh, some posts I wrote. Right? Did you it out? Not, did so, you out Peter? I, you know, Peter Thiel was publicly known to be gay uh, in, in a very large circle. We should point out now, you're gay as well. So, uh, yeah, which doesn't give me a special right to no. you know, yeah. to write about one's you know one's sexual orientation, but the. The thing I wrote back then was that people are people in Silicon Valley are being very weird and touchy when I bring up this topic, and it seems unenlightened to treat to treat gayness as something for you know forbidden that we can't talk about. Right. When many people know, right? You know that Peter Thiel is gay. Many people know that I'm gay. You know I don't need to broadcast it and say I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. For it to be okay, you know, I, right. I feel like coming well, out is something we do for. We don't need to, need to relitigate that, but I just do want to yeah. thank you for putting anyway, Gawker out of business. <laughs> oh, and, oh, and I would like to hear though is that is that because um, uh, that's 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 like the, the point where I was headed here, and and, and and I'm glad you're here for a million reasons. All the history you bring, and you bring that, I'm sure, difficult history. But if you don't mind, talk for a minute about the chill, the legal chill that you lived through, that your colleagues lived through, and what do you think that, even that alone, just just that suit has done to, to the business? Absolutely, I, I mean, to be clear, I left Gawker Media in 2009. The, um, the lawsuit was, uh, I believe, six years later, and we didn't learn, you know, no one involved learned of Peter Thiel's involvement in funding the lawsuit. It was a lawsuit by Hulk Hogan, Against right. it wasn't, it wasn't about Teal, right? No, no, completely it was different yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just uh, funded. Yeah, Peter Teal used a, a strategy called litigation financing just to harm Gawker, not because he was interested in. And in, that's shameful. That's really in, appalling. Yeah, yeah. He, he had no particular interest in Hulk Hogan, except right. that that privacy lawsuit was a vehicle for him. Right. And I think it's, I, you know, I think it's a very real chill. Um, you know, Gawker filed for bankruptcy because of particular quirks of Florida law and the way that, you know, a decision basically had to be immediately paid out before an appeal was heard. Wow. Uh, and, you know, th- again, this was part of like a deliberate strategy to place the lawsuit in Florida mm-hmm. so that they could go down this mm-hmm. go down this path. And, you know, we think of the United States as having fairly media friendly laws but the you know the the fact that you know a, a lawsuit like this can be pursued even you know even though it was you know gawker believed it could be overturned on appeal meaning you know meaning that it you know the original decision was not sound um it's it's scary and you know let's go back to mike masnick talking about the legal risk from overturning section 230 he's basically saying his website could not operate because, um, you know, because the legal uncertainty is just too great. Right. And I, I, I think too I, small. Worry, I wouldn't I, have I, a chat room. We wouldn't have comments. 
uh, we wouldn't have a, a forum for the same. You have a dump button for me when I say anything. I definitely have to get. I would just eliminate all other hosts. <laughs> no, it's really it's it's more than uh, fanciful. It is a chilling effect, and and I'm actually thrilled that you're here, Owen, because that you you have direct experience of exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. And it put Cocker out of business, and I'm being facetious, but uh, about it. But uh, that was that was well, not, that wasn't. You, you would you would have to judge the risk. Yeah. I mean, if if, if you know Owen now working, you work for the Chronicle. They have a really good lawyers. They have a lot of experience at doing this. They're on the one hand they're richer to go after, on the other hand they're harder to go after. Well, it's that regulatory you want to somebody It's that regular cap regulatory capture again. Facebook probably could defend itself against sex, this uh, this new bill. I couldn't. Or would and wouldn't. Well, Facebook would have to change. The algorithms would go in and and become even stupider because if you if you used a word like Nazi, um, they right would out. fear that you were going to right. be accusing someone of that, right? Or thief, or you know, pick a pick a bad word that could what be is, said about someone. So I they're think they're going to try to cut it all out. What is the likelihood of this passing? We've seen a lot of Section Two Thirty attacks. Over the last six months, it's not this one. It's the combination of the pincer it's of both the, the and right and, and left going after them for and their it's own the cluelessness. Reason. It's the yes. It's the lack of understanding. It's not a hard law to understand. Yeah. Nobody gets it. Yeah. Masnick just tears his hair out explaining it a hundred times. I will and, save and Jeff Gossip. I will save the antitrust bill for uh, Wednesday. We'll talk about it on Wednesday because we're <laughs> oh, at. Oh, thanks. My <laughs> blood pressure is too high. <laughs> I don't want to kill Jeff. A uh, couple of really quick stories before we wrap things up. This, I thought, fascinating. Uh, Governor Sisolak of Nevada, Democrat, has announced a plan to launch innovation zones in Nevada to jumpstart the state's economy by attracting technology firms. Among other things, the zone would permit a company with large areas of land, like, say, Tesla, which has the Gigafactory in Nevada, to form its own government with the same authority as a county, including the ability to impose taxes form school districts and courts, mm. and provide government services. 16 tons. What do you get? <laughs> it's the, Another the company store times a thousand. Uh, this has not yet been, uh, he, he said it in his state of the state address, uh, January 19th, it has not yet been introduced in the legislature. Wow. <laughs> but I wonder if that's really where we're headed. This is, he said, remember, of tax uh, benefits, we'll just Google lay you a tax. Yeah, that's exactly. It's Larry Page's island. Yeah. Yeah. This is Larry Page, the co-founder of Google, proposed essentially a a zone free of regulation so that tech companies could kind of experiment and figure things out. Um, you know, if you remember, Google had a floating barge at one point and people were wondering, like, is Why? this a barge? I forgot Why? about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, right. like, is that is that so they could, you know. Take it out to sea, but you, just as right. just as international waters. just as UAE, the UAE has realized oil's not going to last forever. We need to have, you know, they've launched a space program now. We need to have other things. I think Nevada is saying the casino industry may not last forever. We need another way of uh, generating some revenue. We got a lot of desert. <laughs> what if we just? I mean, it just. Uh, you know, I, I think self-driving cars is, you know, is a big real world illustration of this where, um, you know, we've had a competition, kind of a, a race to the bottom among states to see yeah. which, you know, which yeah. state can regulate them the least and thereby 
attract testing. Well, what did we get for that? We got a you know a woman killed by a robot car in Arizona. Yeah, uh, that's you know, what they I all do it, the testing. Yeah, I, I I think it's a tremendously, you know, it's it's a bad enough idea to to have a situation where you know states within this country, counties within states, like compete with each other to be you know to say who can who can be the most lax in a uh, regulatory well, scheme. Dev, devil's advocacy, how many people were killed by human-driven cars? Good point. But I mean, it, the, the self-driving point. car thing is is all about getting to a point where far fewer people die in yeah. cars. Yeah. No, true, cars. but Mike, I think I think Owens, I, I'm going to agree with Owen on this one because I think that the, the problem was it wasn't a Google car that killed the person and the person was going across the street, but it was it was it was a, it was another company that was kind of rushing through this and they found the place where they could rush better. Right. Google's yeah. taking a lot of yes. care and, about this. And Uber and, has and since left issue. that category. Exactly. They're no longer doing self-driving vehicles. Yeah. They'll let they'll let Google and Apple do it instead. Uh, the I, other I, I, the other story, real quick, because I, I want I want to yeah. let you guys go. We've been going two hours. The other story. 23andMe, this is everybody's worst nightmare, is going public <laughs> with, yep. with aid from Richard Branson. They've got your genetic material, and now they're going public, folks, with a SPAC. What's a SPAC, Owen? I, I had you on specifically to explain this. A SPAC is a special purpose acquisition uh, corporation. We, ju- we used to just call them blank check companies. So this is a company that has n- literally no business. It's just some money. In this case, it's Richard Branson's VG Acquisition Corp. Yeah, exactly. Think of it as, you know, like a big pot of money. And according to the rules of the uh, of the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, it's actually legal to take a company like this public. You disclose to investors that, you know, we have a pot of money. We're going to put it in a trust. We're going to look for something to buy. And then we're going to buy that business. We're already public. We're trading. And we're going to mash our ticker symbol together with their business. And suddenly you've got a company. Uh, how is that different from an IPO? Well, one thing it, it does let you do is you can buy essentially earlier stage companies, companies that might not be mature enough or like, you know, their financials might not look quite right for a conventional Wall Street IPO process. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you are putting, you know, you're still putting retail investors at risk. Um, when uh, you know when you buy into these companies, there's also the so, the privacy concern because now uh, who who owns the spit is is going to be the question. And by the way, I have not one but two vials of spit in the rack at Twenty Three and Me because <laughs> I bought some more. Uh, the ticker symbol, which should be spit, honest, uh, is gonna, <laughs> but it's it's okay. It's it's me M E. And it will be traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So they've gone public without really going public. It's fascinating. I don't understand. So, Owen, um, in a case like this, uh, would they have gotten more if they'd gone public in the, in the, in the IPO path? You know, I think it's a SPAC is in some ways more like an acquisition in, for the mm-hmm. target company. So a lot depends on how much money they've raised, what their investors are expecting, Um and, you know, the, the really technical details about the capital structure, which I won't get into. But there may be reasons why it's actually better, especially for the venture capital investors, uh, to go through to go through a SPAC. Um, you know, well, Jisky and Branson both invested 25 million. But is that just pro forma? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's kind of saying you know they're they're putting some We're some equals. money on the table. Yeah, right. They're yeah. you know they are they're doing that to kind of uh, boost confidence in right. the deal. What's the governance? Uh, is 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 Branson now on the board of of the company or? That's a good question. He is. Uh, he's one of the managers um, of the you know of the SPAC. So. Right. Uh, I, where he lands in terms of the operating company, I have not seen that. Uh, it just means uh, I have not seen that discussed. It just but means that uh, Susan Wojcicki gets more invitations to Necker. I mean, Ann Wojcicki. Susan's her sister who runs YouTube. Actually, the, probably both sisters get more invitations to Necker Island so that they can enjoy the private island in the Caribbean. The interesting thing to me is that the uh, the sponsor of a SPAC, the the company that creates it, typically gets a fifth of the company. Oh. Just for setting up the deal. Just for doing it. That's their commission. Just for That's the new bank. So current wow. shareholders of 23andMe will own 81% of the combined company. So I guess the other 19% goes to Richard Branson. And that seems like a big take for yeah. taking a company public. Interesting. Well, this is why we have financial reporters on. Next week, we'll talk stonks with Owen Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's so good to have you, Owen. Come back soon. We really appreciate. Yeah, it's great, uh, Owen. Getting really, to spend really time good to with you. you Fantastic stuff. Owen Thomas is the business editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, at Owen Thomas on the Twitter. Is it SFGate? Is that where people should go to read your stuff? Uh, we're actually sfchronicle.com. We set up our own subscription uh, paywall site. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh. SFGate's completely. Uh, Gate's not the same anymore. Separate. Oh, yeah. that's good to know. Because, yeah, the gate did not have a business header. So uh, I see that the Chronicle does. Good. SF Jeff Chronicle. Knows, Jeff knows that whole, uh, that whole complex history with the examiner of the Chronicle, oh, SF Gate. It's, the, the yeah, that's a whole other partnership. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Jarvis. That's kind of a back in reverse with a triple sow cow. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I give it a 10. He stuck the landing. Director of the Townite Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism at the Craig Newmark. Craig Newmark. Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. We do that because Craig listens and he wants his name sung. It's part of the part of the no, deal. The, no, I do it only. No, he doesn't. He, he do it, no, don't accuse him. I do it in tribute. <laughs> yes, it's a tribute. It's a tribute. That's tribute. all. Thank you, Jeff. We'll see you Wednesday and we can talk about the antitrust legislation. No! And then I like to keep his blood pressure up, keeps him alive. Mike, so good to see you. Mike Elgin, give us a plug for Kevin's Talking Box. Well, hellochatterbox.com is where you can go and learn more. But it's basically a build-it-yourself, program-it-yourself smart speaker like the Amazon Echo. But it's the only smart speaker that I'm aware of that is legal in schools for kids because it is so private. Neither... Chatterbox nor its partners have any idea who the customer is. And so this is just an easy to build project. It's designed for kids nine and up. But even if you're an adult, you want to make something that's private and it's powerful. It does way more than an Amazon Echo does because it will literally do anything you teach it to do. Uh, it's just a fantastic product. Kevin spends morning till night perfecting this product and it's really become an amazing thing. So I would recommend everybody go to hellochatterbox.com. And thank you for letting me do that plug. Leo. I always love that because I think it's a great project. I love Kevin, love you. And I think this is something everybody, every kid should have access to because thank you. Uh, they un need to understand this technology. It's in their lives for sure, but they need to do it yeah. with privacy first. 
Yes. Um, Mike Elgin, Elgin.com is his website, gastronomad.net. Last chance to sign up to go to Oaxaca for the Day of the Dead. Man, that sounds so cool. Yep. <sighs> all right. Thank you, Mike, for being here. Thank you all for joining Thank us. Thank you, Leo. We do This Week in Google. No, that's not the name of the show. No. <laughs> Jeff, you're confusing me. We're taking over. We're taking it over. We, it's a revolt. <laughs> we do this Google. week in tech <laughs> every Sunday afternoon, right after the radio show, 2.30 Pacific, 5.30 Eastern, 22.30 UTC. You can stream it live as we do it. I mean, most people don't, but it's always there for you if you want to listen or watch live at twit.tv slash live. You want to watch a football game instead. It's okay. It's okay. Then you yeah. can always watch us anytime. I'm a, I'm a fan of live streaming. I think I, I don't know why we do it. It's expensive and crazy but if you like it it's there for you if you're watching the live stream you can also uh, of course chat with us uh, at irc.twit.tv they're also watching live i don't think they're distracted by the super bowl yet uh you can also get on-demand versions of everything we do at twit.tv our website there's a this week in tech youtube channel best thing to do is subscribe in your favorite podcast application that way you'll get it automatically the minute it's available, if you haven't taken the survey yet, I think tomorrow's the last day. So I'll just give it one last plug. Twit.tv slash survey 21. We're going to, uh, it's our way of getting to know you each week or each year, I guess we do this. It's an annual survey. It shouldn't take you more than a few minutes. Uh, thank you in advance, but it's completely optional. Twit.tv slash survey 21. Thank you everybody for joining us. We'll see you next time. This Another Twit is in the can.